Thank you so much for tuning in to the Spiro Avenue Show. You could follow us on social media at Spiro Avenue on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also watch our full episodes and clips and highlights on YouTube. And we would appreciate it if you could hit that subscribe button for us. Anyways, thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome back to Spiro Avenue, and happy baptism weekend to my son. And the baptism of my son, young Timothy Spiro, brings my good friend James Gorman in town from North Carolina, one of my best friends in the whole wide world. And as much as I love James and as much as I hope he loves me, nothing can compare to the love that James has for our Guest of honor tonight, John Wharton, <laughs> making his, what, third or fourth appearance with us? Uh, third official. Yeah, third official. Third, with third time's the charm. Yeah, third time's the charm. Yeah, thrilled like to have cup. you. Just like the cup. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, yeah, as much as, I, you know, I love you both. Nothing can compare to James's love for you. He's, you you've been a huge fan of the first couple <laughs> episodes with John. And I think this is a perfect time to have you, John, because even though, you know, your background with the wings is is in that golden era, you still always bring interesting perspectives with the training, what's going on now and the nature of the team. And obviously a guy that, you know, intimately well, Steve Eiserman is running the operation now. Right. But I want to get into that and start there. But the NHL season is complete and the Lightning have done it again. And this is a comparison that we threw together actually on Twitter originally, but for the show tonight. And it, it harkens to the John Wharton days in Detroit. So we're going to put that up there and let you visualize exactly where this uh, state of the lightning is in terms of the NHL and the bigger picture. So, Ben, can you please throw that up for us? Mm -hmm. There we go. Boom. So we call it, um, well, we need it back. need it back, Ben. So we call it the mirror image. This is uh, 1995-1996 Red Wings set the NHL record with 62 wins. 96-97 Stanley Cup champions, 97-98 Stanley Cup champions, and the Lightning in the last three years have done the same exact thing. They tied the NHL record, 62 wins, and then back-to-back cups. So these two teams sort of mimicked each other, and really any one of those accomplishments in a vacuum is impressive to do all three consecutively, set the NHL record, and then win two cups subsequently is just incredible. And the most frequent Twitter reply that I received when I cast this out into the world was, Who's the common denominator? Mm-hmm. Steve Eiserman. We all know it. And I think everyone thought they were clever and pointed it out as if it was some uh, hidden fact. <laughs> but Steve Eiserman obviously captained those three aforementioned Red Wings teams. And although he wasn't officially involved with the Lightning for any of those three uh, prior seasons, all these key pieces for the most part with, you know, Stamkos an exception, but the majority of that team and the coach that coached them was brought in by Steve Eiserman. He built the organization up to what it was. And then Tampa enjoyed the success immediately after he left. So Steve Eisman is the common denominator in all this. Everyone understands that. And I want to talk about the Red Wings specifically with Steve Eisman, because what I've detected, I know I have it in myself, and it's the majority opinion in the fan base that I can tell, is that everyone just kind of believes in the, quote, Eiser plan. There's no there's no like Eiserman skeptics. I, you can't find a group of people on a sports town as crazy as Detroit to agree on anything. I mean, Andre Drummond polarized the fan base. Matthew Stafford is gone. People are still fighting about him. Everyone seems to agree. Eiserman is a foregone conclusion that he's going to have this figured out. It's just, it's a given. Of course, this thing is going to work. It can't not work. John, you know this man intimately. You worked with him in close proximity. You worked on the guy's body. You couldn't have been any closer to Steve Eiserman for a great deal of time. I think you'd agree we're all in the same boat in terms of the consensus on his 
ability to turn this around because Detroit is a mess right now, sort of on the come little by little. What is it about the guy that he's so uh, just unanimously accepted? What what makes him a great leader? Well, obviously, it's his it's his hockey knowledge. Number one, uh, he's just he's a sponge for it. He always has been, and he he's got this awareness of the talent levels that other people, you know, that I've been around, uh, can't see it the way Steve sees it. So, you know, drafting Vasilevsky, you know, what was it? 13 or 16, knowing that he's going to go to the minor leagues for two, maybe three. I think he ended up in three years in the minor leagues. Uh, but now look, <laughs> it's by far the best goalie in hockey. Uh, other people that he picked up, uh, Steven Stamkos took a lot of uh, grief, uh, Braden Point. I mean, you go up and down that roster and it's got Steve Eiserman, you know, fingerprints all over it, obviously. But it's, it's more his feel for the organization, uh, the things that the team needs around them to be successful. And it's a lot of times it's, um, I should say, you know, 90% of the times it's the players that you pick up, but it's the support staff that you put around them. It's the scouts that you uh, entrust. You know, Stevie has to, he can't be everywhere. <laughs> that Then look at every single player that he's potentially thinking about drafting or trading for. So he's got, he's got to have a, a talented crew with him. And he's, he's very adept at putting that together. We grew up, James, like worshiping number 19. Is that safe to say? I mean, he was actually my, like, Probably third favorite player, uh, which but I love them all. But like we just love the guy. He's, Who's he's one a, and two? Well, it depends if you count Dominic Kosick, like in that whole oh, yeah. era. He's oh. my favorite athlete ever. So like, <laughs> I mean, he was only there for a relative cup of coffee and then came back. But like, that's why I said it's kind of a caveat. But the number one, if you're excluding Kosick, would be Fedorov. Mm-hmm. I'm a big Fedorov guy. But you know, love Stevie Eiserman. I mean, it's like it's, you know, it's kind of one A, B, and C with those three and. I mean, that's sort of the point of this, the era that you were so close to is like, you could, there's no bad, there's like 15 reasonable answers for favorite player on those teams. Like if you like the McCarty Draper types, like those guys are legends in their own right. Shanahan was, I mean, Shanahan may have been the most popular guy on the team, at least with the women. (laughs) So, I mean, I know my sister and mom liked them a a lot, so I don't know, but it's just, there's so many good answers, but like, I don't know, James, you're still a Red Wings fan. You're in North Carolina, but like, don't you just kind of feel like, oh, it's fine. Like, yeah, the wings aren't doing great. And they're still, they're a couple years in Eisman's presence. But don't you just feel like, yeah, we're fine. Like, we're good. We have to worry about it. Well, growing up, he was like our, at least I didn't watch basketball, but he was our Michael Jordan for, if, yeah. you're, if you're a Red Wings fan. Like, no one says a bad word about it. Even today, like, you don't see, it, it's all kind of the same thing. It's all, you know, he, he was just a hockey guy. He did everything the right way. Sort of like a Nick Lidstrom, but like they just talked about like his aura in a different yeah. way than than the other guys. And it just, you know, talking with you about it's just kind of what makes him different than some guy. You know, obviously, did he show up early? Did, 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 I just, you know, what about you know? Because when you when he talks in interviews, and you know, obviously it's calculated when he talk, you know his press conferences. But you know, how is he? What is he like in person? Um, you know, he day to day. He's what he needs to be to be successful. Uh, I don't think somebody like Nick Lidstrom could be as successful in a GM role as Steve Eiserman because you, you, you gotta be a dick sometimes. You, <laughs> you gotta be a jerk and you gotta, you, 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 sometimes you just have to not care about hurting somebody's feelings. 
you, you're not always going to be the nicest guy, you know, in the organization, the GM. And I, I think, you know, and you saw that out of Eiserman versus well, if, if you want, if you want to do the Ken Holland, Steve Eiserman comparison, Ken was loyal to a fault to a lot of guys and with a lot of contracts and you know, a lot of people that were acquired or should not have been moved or should have been acquired. You know, there was just a, there was just a nice guy feel about Ken Holland that you're not going to get that with Steve Eiserman. You're going to get what he thinks needs to be done to win. Uh, he can be a really nice guy. He can be a great guy, but when he needs to be a prick, he's going to be a prick too. And the, if, if that is what it takes to, for the organization to be successful, that's what you're going to get. Did he ever yell? I mean, it's, it's like you can be a prick and be, you know, as cold as ice and calculating and not raise an eyebrow. You know, I'm not saying that he wasn't a prick, but like, I just, I can't imagine Steve Eisman coming into the room and just I'm, lighting guys up. I want to clarify. I'm not saying Steve Eisman was a prick. He had moments where he needed to be. We all do. Yeah. If, if yeah. you're going to be successful at anything, you've, you've got to put your foot down. You've got to put, uh, You've got to put your mark on something your way. And he has no problem doing that without hesitation. So I want to just clarify. No, no, that's like, yeah. And yeah, I, yeah, I didn't mean to imply yeah. that. But like, did he ever come in just yelling at guys? That just doesn't seem like his style at all. If, if he did, I never saw it. And uh, I was there before he got there. And I was there after he left yeah. each day. So he just, he wasn't, <clears throat> I'm, I'm not the first guy to say he just wasn't a yeller and screamer. He, he would command attention uh, within the room when it was necessary. But even those times in, in my 12 years, I could count on two hands where he came in and really, uh, you know, had a lot of words to say in a, with, a, in a, with a terse demeanor. But most of the time he just led by example and, or shooting looks. Man, could he shoot the looks. And if you got one of those looks, you pretty much, and you, you screwed up the period before, you pretty much knew what that, what that meant, what that look meant. So, you know, he, but to answer your question, no, he wasn't a guy to come in and just berate somebody, you know, he just, just not in his makeup. And I don't, I don't think he, you know, I haven't been around him as a general manager, but I don't think he has that in him as a, as a GM either. And he was managing a lot of different things. I mean, he was managing a lot of Russians, you know, the, the, the Russian crew that came in when he was yeah. there and, and, you know, obviously he had a good support system with Shanahan and maybe he didn't have to be that guy all the time, but it just, right. it seems like he was dealing with a lot of things that other captains weren't dealing with, you know, yeah. during that time too. Yeah, so. definitely. <clears throat> he, he's a guy that puts a lot of weight on himself too. I was with him. You know, after the Nikolai Borshevsky goal and uh, against Toronto, and again after the Jamie Baker goal against uh, San Jose, those those early round exits in Game Sevens uh, just crushed him. And uh, he and his wife Lisa were in Doctor Finley's room till you know almost three in the morning after each of those. You know, and he's just trying to figure out how where he went wrong. You know, he's one guy at that time. He's one player playing one shift at a time. You know, he didn't put that team together. But he was very introspective, even in those moments of of losing uh, games that we shouldn't have lost or series that we had no business losing with that much talent on the team. He really internalized it and took it, you know, very much to heart. One of my favorite sports movies of all time is 61, directed by Billy Crystal. 
obviously like the one, the story you like that one. Love that one. The yeah. story of the home run chase in 1961 with yeah. uh, you know Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris, and they were going for 61 home runs in 1961. That was actually filmed at Tiger Stadium, by the way. Mm-hmm. Little little known fact, but there was here's where I'm setting this up. In the movie, they did a great job, and I've actually read uh, legitimate uh, biographies on this situation. The movie portrayed it wonderfully that the, the perception in the public, the fan base, the New York gossip rags, was that there was this bitter rivalry between the two. Mickey Mantle hated Roger Maris. Roger Maris hated Mickey Mantle. They were fighting about this home run record, and certainly it made good theater. And then you, you actually read about it, and 61 wasn't to the letter accurate, but it was pretty close, according to every true account there is. The guys got along great. I mean, they weren't brothers or best friends on the team, but Mickey yeah. Mantle liked Roger Maris, and Roger Maris, I don't think, hated anybody. He's like the nicest guy ever by all accounts. So, like, there was a big divide there from what the fan base thought, what the media portrayed, and the reality. I'm curious, John, about your perception of Sergey Fedorov or Steve Eiserman, because I don't know, James, you can correct me if I'm wrong in your experience, but I know what mine was. Even though most fans love both, you tended to be Team Eiserman or Team Fedorov. And it wasn't just that you had a preference one or the other. There was a perception that <clears> the <throat> best players on the team did not get along, that Eiserman had an issue with Fedorov, Fedorov had an issue with Eiserman. You worked with the guys every day. I mean, is that like a 1961 home run chase in New York myth? Or is there some truth to the fact that Eiserman and Fedorov had a little bit of a rivalry there at least? There was a rivalry, but it, it was it was a competitive one. It was a healthy one. It was uh, Stevie always wanting Sergey to be better. And by be better, he thought he could be better if he was a little bit tougher. So, But there was also Sergey's on-ice talent and his on-ice ability, I think, pushed Stevie a little bit. So there, if there was a rivalry there, it was a competitive one uh, because – um, obviously neither one of them wanted to, to see the other one fail because then that would ultimately mean that they would themselves fail. And so would we as a team. So it wasn't a negative uh, rivalry in, in any sense of, of the word. A lot of people have pointed out there's a picture. Uh, I'm helping Sergey off the ice and Sergey, uh, Steve Eiserman is clearly looking down at both of us and he's clearly agitated. But what he was saying was, Come on, Sergey, we need you to go. He wasn't berating him, but if I can find the photo, I'll send it to you. It, it, it clearly looks like he's he's giving him shit, but he wasn't. He was he was very he was encouraging him and telling him how important he was to the team at that moment. But I can also find photos of Steve Eiserman coming over to me on the ice with a with an injured Paul Coffey or with an injured Ray Shepard. He just always would come over. And want to make a, his presence known that you're going to go in the locker room. John's going to tell you that you're okay and you're going to be back out next shift. So there was that was the way he led. So if a guy went down on the ice, he, would, he, he wouldn't just sit on the bench and wait for his next shift. He'd come out and check on the guy. He'd ask me, you know, is it bad? And if it wasn't, he'd put a little something in their ear to make sure that they knew he was paying attention. Yeah, you're expected to be back exactly. out there, basically. Exactly. And that there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, I've had people point that picture out to me and say, you know, he's, you can, you can tell he's giving Sergey shit in that photo. I'm like, uh, there were three of us there. I was one of them. And he didn't give him shit at all. He was encouraging him. He was telling him how, how important he was 
in that moment and to uh, do what he had to get back on the ice next shift. So I mean, we saw Steve Eiserman's approach to playing hurt in 2002. I mean, the guy had what, like three quarters of one knee. If, yeah, <laughs> it was that, hanging by a thread. Yeah, he could barely, he was still like effective, but he was, he was yeah. just, I mean, even celebrating after with the adrenaline was just dragging mm-hmm. his leg around. But so in other words, I mean, short answer, there's <clears> no, you, there was no tension there where Eiserman's going to management saying, get this guy out of town or, cause that's, the, there were all those rumors, like not, yeah. not even a, a bad month that they had or anything. I, I don't recall it. And, yeah, uh, you know, I'd, I'd get, I'd get wind of stuff like that. If there was, you know, uh, people, you know, guys in the room really not getting along on a personal level. Uh, but from a hockey level, uh, I never saw it. I didn't, and I don't even think that it existed, you know, not that, you know, I don't, there are people who said that, uh, Stevie went to management and says, we, you know, we're, we can't win the, with this guy. That was I don't, one of I don't, rumors, yeah. I don't believe that for a second. I don't think that Steve Eiserman ever went to management and said, get rid of Sergey Fedorov. Because I think Steve Eiserman was smart enough. Well, we've already talked about his hockey knowledge and his instincts. He was smart enough to know that Sergey was going to be an in, important part of achieving Steve Eiserman's ultimate goal, which was to win the Stanley Cup. So yeah. I, I don't think for a second that that he ever went to management and said, you know, we need to move on from this guy. We're not going to win with him. That, to me, that's almost laughable. Oh, I wouldn't want to get rid of him <laughs> if the goal is winning. I mean, am I crazy? Do you remember like that kind of riff? And I, like, well, I was always Team Stevie, so it was you were you were yeah, yeah. you were a team. I see. I, I mean, I love them both. I was not like a hardliner, but I, yeah. I I was just such a sucker for Fedorov. But so let's transition to this. It's the perfect transition because we're talking about Sergey. So let's move off number nineteen and flip the numbers around and go to ninety one. This is one of my cause celebs with the Detroit Red Wings. It drives me nuts that I haven't gotten my way and a lot of people have not gotten their way. Sergei Fedorov's number 91, still not retired. I don't understand it. I, I, I can't. I, I know why. There's no mystery. So I understand why. Yeah. I can't understand why the reason it is, is preventing it from happening. And we all know it's an Illich family gripe about the contract situation. And we eventually left. <laughs> for Anaheim in 2003. So the last time we researched this, the last time this was addressed in an official way, official-ish way, was just over a year ago, Steve Eisman was asked at a press conference in February 2020 about, hey, what's going on with Sergey? Are we going to retire that number or what? So we'll play that and then we'll get uh, sort of into the meat and bones of this. You know, kind of tell the Illich family that maybe it's time for that. I know the fans would. You know, it's not my place to make that decision, and it's not my place to tell the Illich family what to do. (laughs) Um, Ultimately, I think it's something that will get a lot of consideration. Before we get into it, Steve Eiserman is saying what he has to say. This is not a criticism of Steve because we know it's not his decision, and he's telling the truth. So this isn't about Steve, but let's listen to what he said. Get a lot of consideration. Sergey Fedorov's jersey being retired is going to, quote, get a lot of consideration. How much time do you need as an organization to consider it? Sergey left Detroit 19 years ago. He retired from the whole league 13 years ago. I, I just, this whole get a lot, you know, it's going to get a lot of consideration. I think you've had enough time to consider it. And the mere fact that statement, which again, not a criticism of Eisman, because I know it's the company line being relayed, but the mere idea that this is like still in deliberation being considered, I think is on its face and by itself 
insulting. To me, it's self-evident. I want to talk about uh, you know, sort of your perception on this, but what's one more little piece of media for you. Another guy you know, John, Darren McCarty, was on my show a couple months ago, mm-hmm. and I asked him this question. Anytime there's a wings topic, I, this is always on the agenda because I'm fascinated to hear people's perspectives. Darren McCarty disagreed with me strongly. We're not going to play the whole thing, but we had a sort of spirited eight or nine minute back and forth. We cut just a little bit of clip of that to give you the perspective on where he lands on this. Mm-hmm. So let's play that, and then we'll get into your opinion on it. Whether Sergey. Yeah, he'd be the closest one to getting out there, but you got Steve Eisman and Nick Lidstrom. Look at those careers here, Detroit, whatever. Look at all the other guys that went up before it. I think, I don't know if Sergey goes up to that. Oh, uh, with yeah. the track, with the, with the, because it's the tenure too. Look at the rafters. Look at the tenure or what they meant to the organization at the era and the time, right? When the back, things like this. And then you go look at Toronto and they retire everybody's jersey. It would have been a complete, it would have already been done had he stayed and had, you know, another five. Well, oh, then, then, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So his argument is basically two, twofold. The tenure, he wasn't there long enough, which I mean, he was there. I think 13 years. I think that's long enough, but it's the tenure and it's that he wasn't important enough when he was there. I I disagree with both. I think he was there long enough and Mm -hmm. I think he was arguably their most important player of that entire era. Like, where do you land on this, John? Like, it it is the ultimate Hutus and Tutsis with the Red Wings fan base, retire 91 or not. Where does John Wharton land? Well, I'm I'm 100% in, in uh, Camp Retire 91. All right. Uh, there's no <laughs> doubt about that from me. I do understand uh, Darren's perspective on it in terms of the standard that the Red Wings as an organization have seemed to set. Uh, are you a career Red Wing? Uh, is that the only way that you get in? Because if that is the standard for if that's the main and leading standard to getting your your jersey retired, uh, there probably in in today's game won't ever be another jersey retired, right? Because that's you know in the way the game is now, uh, and almost the way it was when you know when Sergey transitioned or left for Anaheim and did what he had to do for himself. Uh, you know, that's, that's a tough standard to live up to. So I don't know if that's the end all be all. And what are there? Nine, 10 numbers up there. I think it's nine, but you're saying, you're saying the standard going forward is unattainable other than the occasional, you know, Sidney Crosby. Yeah. It's not even the standard now. Sid Abel played <clears throat> elsewhere. Gordy Howell played yeah. elsewhere. Ted Lindsay, Ted Lindsay played did. elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, it's so, I think Del Vecchio played for yeah. the Rangers. Though There's more names no, up yeah, there. Yeah, I didn't. was referring to his Steve Eiserman, Nick Lidstrom uh, standard, yeah. uh, you know, from that era. But it's, it's already been it. bucked, right. so it's a bad argument. Yeah. They're, they already haven't followed yeah. that. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> I, I think I told you last time and probably the other time that I was here, every time and for every time I come here ever again, we probably don't win one, let alone three Stanley Cups with without Sergei Fedorov as as a very important part of that team. So I'm hundred percent in retired ninety one, and I have I, I have been, and I'll, I'll never I'll never waver on it. Nothing can happen to change my mind. <laughs> and we're, we'll get to Chris Osgood later, so I don't want to litigate that now. But to me, Chris Osgood is like the legitimate. Okay, I could I could go either way. There's times where I'm like, I think you should. There's times I think you shouldn't. 
The fact that there's this grand debate about Sergei Fedorov to me is silly, but when you look at it objectively, <clears throat> it's not as silly because it's not, you know, McCarty's talking about the tenure and, and the, the weight of your tenure when you were there. I don't think he even really believes those are the reasons because everybody knows the real reason is because of the riff with the Illich family. Is, I mean, do you think there's anything other than that? If he had finished his career and even just they didn't do anything, let's say, God forbid, he got hurt his first year of his new contract and never played again, but had never left. Mm -hmm. But his credentials were exactly the same. His stats were the same. His heart trophy, et cetera. It's entirely the family situation, right? But for that, he'd be up there right now. But for that, I agree that he would be up there right That's now. That's the only reason. And if you look at, at the totality of the 10 years of number five and number 19, what are those 10 years like without number 91? So it's, I mean, if that's your, if that's your yardstick, then take away that element and now measure it. Now measure those 10 years. Uh, I don't think they're what they are now. You're, you're going to have a hard time. I, his, to his point, you're going to have a hard time putting any, anybody else up there in the future if you're not going to put 91 up there, right? I mean, yeah. 13 years, all the stats that he had, if you put somebody else up there, it's like, you know, well, Fedorov was way better than him. Yeah. You know, like you can't put anybody else up there. You're kind of boxing yourself in. Mm -hmm. And then that would kind of prove your point to it being more of a personal issue. Well, then that, would kind of, that would prove it. If you're putting up somebody who was there for nine years, maybe won a couple of cups, had a great career, right. you know, maybe got hurt. And it's like, well, every single stat that Fedorov has is better. So you're, you're going to retire him. So going forward, you're going to, I mean, you're going to find out. Yeah, and he did it when, I mean, if you look at the numbers in those cup runs, he was a point-per-game player. He, he had a more point-per-game uh, output than Steve Eiserman. So it's like he was, in totality, I totally agree with you. I mean, you could take any one year where somebody did better. But in the totality of his career, and it's not just the cup runs, even when they made the finals and lost in 95, made the conference finals in mm -hmm. 96 and lost. You know, it's he was so dominant in those series. And you talked about, you know, the stats, which are totally valid, but it's not just the stats. The guy's a two time Selkie winner for how right. good he was as a defensive forward. So even yeah. the stuff that well, doesn't show was, up. And he was one of our better defensemen. Yeah. For he, a large. Did, did Bowman say he could have won a Norris he, if we he, put him back yeah, there? Wasn't that he, a Bowman? If he quote? played a full season back there, I, I, I don't doubt it. He was incredible. So, and people, a lot of people forget how much defense, you know play behind the blue line that 91 had. So uh, I don't, I don't even know why it's up for debate anymore in this town. I really don't. Uh, it's, it seems to me it's a discussion. What are the uh, arguments in the organization? It? What are the right. arguments against like the, ar the arguments? He didn't play long. He didn't, he didn't stay long. I mean, it, it is nothing other than, in my opinion, people that didn't really watch for one, because anybody that actually watched the games back then, like, I don't think could possibly have this opinion, but if you do, it is entirely based on that provincial, he left us, you know, he left us high and dry. For the few people that don't know, most people that are watching this episode know kind of what happened there. But if you don't, the long and short of it is Sergei Fedorov's contract was up after the Stanley Cup in 2002. He was negotiating an extension with the Red Wings. He wanted to come back. And, and John, after I'm done, you can tell me if I got any of this wrong. He wanted to come back. The team wanted him back. He had a certain number in mind, but he said with his agent, I want to, you know, talk to other teams and just kind of see what's out there. And that sort of interest even being shown by Fedorov saying that he's even going to talk to other teams was an affront to Mike Illich. 
Sergei Fedorov had an offer in hand from Anaheim, went back to Mike Gillich and said, those numbers we were discussing, the parameters of earlier are fine, and accepted Mike Gillich's original <clears throat> offer for less money than Anaheim had on the table and ended up paying him. But Mike Gillich was so offended that Sergei Fedorov, a UFA, every right to look at his options, would even talk to somebody else. It was so offensive that Illich pulled the offer, very similar to what he did to Max Scherzer 10 years later with the Tigers, by the way, pulled the offer and said, no, take a hike. So Sergey is standing there saying, hey, that money that you have, that you offered me four days ago, I want it, I'll take it. It was Illich that said no. That's, and I, I, I'm pretty sure that's common knowledge, but if it's not, I'm telling you that's what happened. John, I mean, you were around, like, that was, you guys left at the same time, but yeah. that was like, is that not your understanding as well? That's kind of my understanding, but you're, you're, also, leave, you're also letting Peter Carmanos off the hook from the offer sheet that... Uh, that, was pr- that was four years prior, though. Yeah. Yeah, and that was the 98 offer sheet. Yeah, Mr. I had a good memory. <laughs> yeah, but he, he forgave him enough to offer him an extension. Uh-huh. I mean, so <laughs> he wanted him. I mean, uh, I'm just saying that there, you know, there were certain dominoes that lined up that uh, it wasn't. I don't think that it was in. I don't think it was 100 percent the Anaheim offer. Oh, I'm that's, sure that's my opinion. You're probably I, right. I think with the with the Carmanos with the Carolina offer uh, and having to match that deal, uh, that kind of set the. That was kind of the first domino that that got lined up. I'm pretty sure Fedorov has like a, a Guinness World Record for <laughs> most uh, for any athlete biggest compensation like per day's work. He made like 28 million dollars for like 24 <laughs> days of work or something. That's an yeah. actual like stat if you yeah. from which which team? Because when he played at the end of the '98 season after the oh. he got because it was this huge signing bonus up front. The Carmanos did that on purpose to try to get Mike yeah. Gillich to not match it. And so, I mean, I may have some of the numbers wrong, but it was a huge, he was like, was there for like a couple of weeks and got, got just in a, a massive pile of money. Mm-hmm. But the long and short of it is, look, even if Sergey Fedorov wanted to leave, did leave, said, Mike, it's been fun. I want to go live in California. That's still not a valid argument. Oh, he was disloyal. How much do the guys has to play his whole career there? Even if that were the case, it's not a valid argument. But even that's not what happened. That's not, it's just factually incorrect. He wanted to stay. Yeah. And Mike pulled the offer. So maybe, if anything, if you have any animosity about Sergey Fedorov leaving, you're pointing it at the wrong guy. Point the finger at ownership. To me, that's mm-hmm. my takeaway. I mean, if you're mad about it, don't you think that's more on ownership than Sergey Fedorov? Like, Fedorov didn't do anything wrong. It seems like a really harsh punishment for not taking or, you know, going yeah. through the offer and just not doing well during negotiations. Like, yeah. Like he leaves, it's fine, but then you have your, your history with him. And by the way, going back to the Steve Eiserman, like, he could have thrown something in there like, oh, well, I think he should, though. Like, he could have said something like that. Like, it just depending as a should player, work. when they were asking him about retiring 91. Oh, I He could you. have said yeah, something, you know, off the point. cuff, like, oh, yeah, but I think he should. You know, as a player, maybe he was just talking as a he, GM. He would view that as talking out of turn, uh, though, I think, yeah, right? Yeah, maybe. Because he's going to be like, contradicting his his boss, right? True. But he but he could move the needle if he wanted to. Oh, he could. You know, he, he could. Move the needle, and he wouldn't get in trouble for it either. I I don't know on this issue. This one seems to be pretty. Uh, this one, the ink is seem getting drier and drier. And we don't know, know all by the information the too. We one. don't know all the information. Yeah, I like we you know, know we, f- for me, I just think that you know, like concussions, 
those, those, you know, the Carmanos thing, then the Anaheim thing, they had a cumulative effect. Um, and who knows who, you know, who's to say that Illich pulling that offer wasn't in some way of a retribution to Sergey for, you know, signing the uh, Carolina offer sheet four years prior. You know, it's the, the Illich loyalty uh, runs deep. It's very important to them as a family. I get that. I totally get that. Uh, but for me, uh, jerseys re- being retired and things like that is strictly based on what happens in those 200 on feet on the ice. Yeah. 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 And the organization, I look, we all know the owner can do whatever they want, but I'm sorry. The organization is bigger than the owner. It was there before the owner. It'll be there after the owner, presumably, unless the, right. the Atlanta Thrashers. Like, <laughs> I, it's, it's, the Red Wings are, I mean, Chris Illich will eventually sell or someone will sell or there'll be a huge estate tax when he passes it to his kids in 40 years. The Wings will still be there. All those jerseys up there, most of those guys were not, or more than half were not drafted when they were the Mike Illich Red Wings. So, like, I, I just, I think it's bigger than them. And I think it's petty what they're doing. I, I just will throw up, I just, just to give the full perspective, Sergey Fedorov's sort of resume, this is strictly the Red Wings. So, Ben, please throw up, uh, it will put a button on this. I mean, to me, this is such a no-brainer. 13 seasons, <laughs> three Stanley Cups, two-time Selkie Award winner for the best defensive forward. The Hart Trophy in 1994 means he was the best, most valuable player on the planet. Mm-hmm. 400, 400 goals, goals, which is fourth in All franchise time. history. Yeah. 554 assists, that's seventh in franchise history. 163 playoff points, third in All franchise time. history. Yeah. So uh, he's, uh, these are, he's better than... Some of the guys are already up there in like all these categories. Like he's better than at least one guy that is up there. So, I mean, you can discount mm-hmm. Lidstrom because he's a defenseman, but like he's better than the standard that they claim to have, than the standard that has the winning up in the rafters now. It's insane. We'll finish with this. I've told the story a couple of times. Our good friend Jack Johnson, 2007, makes his NHL debut in LA playing the Vancouver Canucks. We end up in a suite, which is very cool. The, you know, the ownership like got us a suite for Jack's debut. And Luke Robitaille was like one of my five favorite players growing up. And Robitaille was one of my five too. Loves Luke. Great guy. I just, a guy had no talent, but was like, it scored 700 goals anyway. <laughs> yeah. like, it's just, I don't know how he scored right. 700 goals. Couldn't skate, couldn't shoot, couldn't <laughs> pass. One of the best players ever. So he's a great guy. So he was, at, he's since elevated. I think he's like the assistant GM, not a Rob Blake there or something. Yeah. At the time, he was like the party planner. He had just gotten in the front office. He had just retired like a year or two prior. So I was talking to him, great guy. And I was asking him, of course, about the 2002 Red Wings. We'll get into deeper later because it's my favorite sports team ever. I mean, those two wings are like beyond reproach. I saw my favorite athlete of all time. It was my favorite then, Dominic Hasek, complete his resume for my favorite team. I mean, it's just, that'll never happen again. But I was peppering him with questions about 2002. And I said, you played with almost a dozen Hall of Famers on that team. And he was one of them, obviously. Mm -hmm. Like if you, the, the hypothetical I posed to him was, if you had a seven game series and you're picking a team and you had your life on the line, and the player that you're picking has his life on the line if they lose. You have to win. The stakes are bigger than the Stanley Cup. Your life's on the line. From that 2002 team, who are you taking? And you can get them in their prime. So you can get Brett Hole in his prime, Steve Eiserman in his prime. This is Luke Robitaille's quote in response to me. I remember it because I've repeated it a million times. He told me, that's a tough one. I played with so many great players. 
But if our lives are on the line, give me Sergey. And I wow. then asked him, okay, in your whole career, who would be your pick? This is a guy that played with Wayne Gretzky. Wow. He said, give me Sergey. Because if our lives are on the line and Sergey's life's on the line, you're going to get the absolute best version of Sergey. And Sergey, when he's on, is the best player he's yeah. ever played with. Rashid Wallace syndrome. Well, Rashid <laughs> underachieved, yeah. but he didn't have it in him to be the Michael Jordan. Yeah, I mean, so Luke Robitaille, who is no dummy, is one of the one of the best like forty players ever, maybe even higher yeah. in terms of production. One of the ten best. Uh, that's his opinion. He played with Wayne Gretzky, Brett Hall, Nick Lindstrom, Dominic Kostic. He played with all these fucking guys. Mm-hmm. He did say it was tough. He didn't say, "Oh, no brainer." But yeah, he paused for a second and said, "Life's on the line. Give me Sergey. Yeah. I'm going to get up." Bullet in the head if I'm wrong, if I lose. <laughs> Give me Sergey. That's my, that's my bullet uh, that I'm going to finish on. I mean, get the guy's number up there. Luke yeah. Robitaille is saying that that was his number one pick. The resume speaks for itself. Petty differences aside, it wasn't even your petty difference, Chris. I mean, I know you yeah. like Chris Illich, but it was your yeah. dad's petty. Like, I'm not going like, to carry on some grudge my dad has. I don't yeah. know. <clears throat> one last thing on that also is that I think, I think that that uh, – that issue is holding up a couple of other deserving players, in my opinion. Uh, and I know Darren talked about, you know, you don't want to be Toronto throwing everybody up in the rafters, but Pavel Datsuk and Henrik Zetterberg, in my opinion, uh, would be very, very worthy on almost any other original six team of having their numbers right. up you there as up 13 and 40. And that was your point. Can't 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 that's what I'm saying. Yeah. It, it's holding up. Some other very deserving Pavel, guys. Setsuk and Zetterberg were I, like huge for I, a long time for I us. would have zero problem with 13 and 40 I'm sure being up in the Raptors. But, but they can't go up there and, you know, right. because 91's not up there. Because that, if you play that card, then you, you've, you've shown your whole hand. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. So right. they're not playing that card. They're not putting 13 or 40 up there until they figure out what's going Which on with is, 91. That's a great point. That's a great point. And it's, it's funny because it's like Fedorov is more qualified than either of those guys. More goals, more assists. The only thing that either of those two have on Fedorov is Datsuk has more Selkie trophies. But neither one of them won a heart. Neither one won a Lester right. B. Pearson. Fedorov's got three cups. Datsuk's got two. Zetterberg's got one. Like Fedorov's got him in every single category right. except yeah. Selkies for Datsuk. So it's like, that's a mm-hmm. great point. Yeah, you yeah. guys both kind of made it together. Like, it is an artificial ceiling now. It's like you're going to need Connor McDavid to come here and play 12 years for it to be broken through. Yeah. And that means there's yeah. not going to be anybody at these ceremonies coming back. Like, we, like once all these other guys pass away, it's going to be like Gordy. Mm-hmm. It's going to be uh, Steve Eiserman and Nick Lidstrom just standing there by themselves. Kind of just <laughs> like, okay. Well, there's, like, you there's, know? there's no bigger fan of Mike Yelich than me. Like, we don't have to get deep into that. I'm a huge Mike Yelich guy. Some people in town don't like him. Guy just worked his ass off trying to get one for the Tigers. Yeah. Who in their right mind is going to complain about the Red Wings era when John was there? I mean, it's like, you know, the mm-hmm. Mike Yelich Red Wings. Yeah. I mean, nobody deserves that success. Even when they didn't win the cup, they were always good, always interesting. Yeah. Like, so I love Mike Yelich. It's just, and obviously he, he died having not made this, uh, you know, pivot. But it's like, please, this stupid, petty thing, get 91 up there. That's where I land. So Amen. I want to transition to this just a little bit on the Russians generally. Because I'm a sucker for the Russians, John. I always was in the video games when you could play like with the country. I always picked the <laughs> Russians because they were fast. Yeah. All their speeds were like 92 and higher. Like <laughs> I just I like their style. They're fast. They're smooth with the puck. 
We have, do you, do you know who uh, Alexander Froloff is since retired, but good yeah, Russian winger? Yeah. Uh, played for Kings and Rangers and that very good player. Um, we've talked about Jack a lot on the show, but Jack had this great story. And this is an intersection with you. He played in LA with Froloff and Froloff fucked up some play. I don't know. He screwed up somehow. And uh, they scored a goal and he comes back to the bench and he's sitting there. And Mark Crawford, your old buddy that we talked about oh, last yeah. time, who was the Kings coach at the time, I guess his favorite word was cocksucker. Like he would yell at guys and call him a cocksucker yeah. all day yeah. in practice. So he's leaning in the Froloff's ear. You motherfucking cocksucker. You, you know, stuff I can't say. Like, mm-hmm. I don't, don't want to get sued. Yeah. But from what I heard, he was hot. He was as hot as Mark Crawford can get. And he's just laying into him for like a minute straight. And then finally, Turns and you know walks down the, the other end of the bench, and Jack was sitting right next to Froloff, and Froloff looks at him and goes, "Coach, huh, angry." <laughs> and, just like, just, and Jack, Jack's like, "I don't even yeah. usually care what coaches say, you know, if they're yelling at me, it's like it's part of the game. Like yeah. I'm not, not that I'll care, but like I don't get rattled. But I've never seen a guy take a lashing <laughs> like that and just be like, eh, yeah, what, what, what are you gonna do?' And it's it just." You worked with the original legendary Russian five, like the yeah. most famous sort of Russians in the 90s by far. Like, what is it about them? Because you worked with these guys daily. They're a different breed, are they not? Like, there's something weird about them in a good way, I think. Yeah, it is in a good way. And, you know, that, you know, Coach Angry, there's, there's, there's some bad things and there's some really good things about not fully knowing how to speak a foreign language. The good thing is that all communication is shortened to the point. (laughs) You know, there's, there's no, there's not a lot of ahs and this, and you know, not, not a lot of banter coach angry, you know, (laughs) or like that's yeah. And so, but you know, obviously there's some hangups too, to not, to not knowing the language of the land that you're living in, but uh, you know, they, they, they got a lot of grief and I, I, I don't remember which players particularly would just be like, you know, I wish they could fucking speak English. You know, I can't understand them out on the ice. I'm just thinking, you know, I probably said to him uh, also like, go play in Russia, see how that culture shock is for you, you know? And now, you know, with the KHL, there's a lot of coaches and some players going over there and, and they're learning. It's, it's not that easy to do to just leave your native land and come and, you know, America is a, is a big culture shock to a lot of, of foreigners, particularly the Russians, uh, you know, because when back in the nineties, you know, it's so different than it is now. Uh, early nineties. Yeah, it was, you know, it was just like, wow. And whereas a guy like Sergey embraced it, you know, with the, with the long hair and the, the crazy clothes and the Corvettes and then the Ferraris and, you know, he loved the lifestyle here, but a guy like Kozlov couldn't get out of here fast enough. You know, he's like, as soon as, soon as his, he hung those gloves up, the, the plane ticket was underneath the gloves to mm-hmm. get back to Russia. You know, so there's, there's, there's good and bad about, you know, these, these cultural differences, but Sergey really, and that's, you know, he was, I'll say it, he was my favorite guy on the team. I just, I liked him on the ice and I liked him off the ice. He was, he was a difficult guy. He he was a very sensitive person and, you know, hockey players, you you can't be sensitive, you know, you got to be tough, but he cared. He cared about every guy in that room and, and, and every girl in the, the meal room or 
the the press, the media people that helped us out, and you know, he cared about everybody in that organization. And uh, he is, I I keep hearing stories. You know, somebody will like comment on something that I post on Facebook about Sergey. It's like, oh, I met him at a, you know, he was at this park, and he just totally blew off my kid, and this and that. Like, man, can you just imagine for a second just being bombarded like the way? So, but I I've seen Stevie do the same thing. Is my point, you know, but. And no one says a bad word about him. Uh, no, like, no, right. no, yeah. no, nobody says, you know, I was sitting across from Steve Eiserman at a meal at the Denver Chop House and a girl confused me for him and brought me his eight by 10 and asked me to autograph it. And I'm like, I slid it across and I was just laughing at her. I'm like, yeah, I think you want this guy. He chucked the photo off the table and threw the pen across the room. You Steve know, he, yeah, he was, he was not happy with that moment. So. And I get it, you know, she, he didn't really, he, he was like, well, she can't be that big a fan if she fucking doesn't you know think it was the which one I am. More so than uh, coming to dinner. Yeah, kind of thing. Uh, maybe a combination of both, but yeah. you know, she probably had it coming. I'm not, you know, you should probably really identify who you think you're going to go talk to. I never before. understood that. Well, somebody could do that at, din at yeah. dinner. Yeah. Unless well, you're like a crazy. kid, unless you're like a little kid and it's yeah. like, kids get a lot of role. Like, I feel like. Well, yeah. And then they're only they're only there for a second. Yeah. You know, it's a kid. But like you get an adult or a, a, even females around too. It's like yeah. okay. Like Yeah, it's I it's they in that time, that team they couldn't you, you guys you guys were fans at the time. Though oh. they couldn't go anywhere, you know. You know, to to a lesser degree and I wasn't as good as handling it on a personal level. You know, my head got big and the attention. And, but look at Karen Newman. We had the most popular Zamboni driver in, yeah, in, all, in all of hockey. You know, everybody down there, uh, Paul Boyer, the equipment guy, everybody, you know, we didn't pay for cars. We didn't pay for meals. We didn't, you know, any, we, the red carpet was everywhere. Wherever we walked, there was a red carpet in front of us in Detroit back in those days. And it was, imagine. it was, it was nuts. It was the number one show in town. The Red Wings yeah. were bigger oh, than the Lions, Tigers yeah. and Pistons, like, like by far. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. but I, I was just amazed at how, because I, I know who you are because when we talk, Justin and I have talked about this, they gave you a lot of like airtime. Like when, on, yeah. on, like when, if there was a puck went out of the, you know, in the stands, they'd show you uh, like on the, on the bench or whatever. <laughs> and I'd be like, okay, that's, that's yeah, how I know who you, so I mean, yeah. Just, yeah. Everybody, you know, from, from Stevie on everybody in that yeah. room, everybody, you know, it's, you know, somebody probably knew the bus driver's name, you know, that's how rabid the fans were about that team you know through and through paul boyer paul boyer and i got to do a espn commercial you know wow. the other train and i i wrote though. that by the way i you wrote, you wrote oh the they brought us some youtube anywhere uh it's yeah, called it's called down. man down i have a copy of it i'll get it to you but they brought me these corny scripts and i'm like if i'm doing this yeah i'm gonna do it right so the the finished product was actually i wrote it and and directed it and told him you know the mannequin's gonna fly across the ice i'm gonna like fumble my way out to it and just say yell back to paul boyer time and he's he gives me the time oh, I and i go gotta get faster i gotta get faster so i i wrote that. yeah i wrote and directed that commercial oh, man, and i got I one that. i got one dollar for it 
Because <laughs> they had to pay me. Yeah, under you were underpaid for sure. Yeah. To, if, if he remembers oh, yeah. that, I'm sure it was. Good. No, I swear to God. I mean, I, but to, money. I swear I remember that commercial. Yeah, yeah. I think it was fun to do. I think yeah. that was funny about you, John. Is like, I, look, I'm a big sports fan. I host the sports show in my basement. You know, Tony Paul says it's the best one in town. Yeah. Right? So, <laughs> like, I'm, a, I'm a very passionate guy about this stuff. I, I I follow sports so closely to the point my wife has thought twice about staying in the marriage. But uh, just just <laughs> just kidding. But no, like I, I know this stuff. You are the only one that I've seen in this town or any other that had uh, the trainer was a sex symbol in town. I mean, just an awkward conversation for you, maybe put you on the spot. But like you were like uh, John Lennon as the trainer, which like I, what, what other like trainer was a sex symbol? But my sister had a big crush on John Wharton. <laughs> yeah. And he was like you and Brendan Shad had it. it was like a constant coin flip. But like, I mean, even so even you like you got recognized going around town, right? Like. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. It's just, and, or when you weren't being mistaken for Steve Eisenman at the Denver Chapel yeah. or whatever it was, but it just that if you weren't there, like what, what would the cutoff be, James? Like if you're under 27, maybe like, I feel like someone a few years younger than us. 27's born in. I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah, no. Like yeah. you gotta be 30 or older. Yeah, so to like my really daughter's age. Right stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just. Like if you're you gonna be born in ninety one, well, because we have a lot of people in their twenties that watch the show, and they're yeah. they're like they're like, what the hell are you talking? Yeah. About? Like the Wings were even when they were you know in their lifetime good in 08, like and you know won the cup, they were a big deal. But there was something about like that era, I, you know, what would you say, probably ninety five to like 03, where yeah. it was just insane. And you were there the whole and way. People would watch every yeah. game, like you wouldn't miss a game. Like your Wings are playing right. tonight. Like yeah. you're at home watching the Wings Tuesday you're night. Not watching, yeah, you're you're yeah. not watching anything else. If you're if you're in Detroit, like. That was just a special time for, yeah. especially playing hockey too. Like, you're watching the Wings. You're yeah. not doing anything else unless you had to go play hockey or something. Like, oh, what happened in the Wings game? Like, yeah. oh, listen to it on the way back on the WFAN or whatever, whatever the station was. WDFN. The, the, yeah, WDFN yeah, or whatever. Then. I've been out of town for a while. Uh, but yeah, 1130 or whatever it was, or the, the ticket or whatever it was. But yeah, we listened to it on the way home or just, it just goes. Yeah. Like that, you know, like all that. That was so, a special time. I don't know if, if we'll if we'll see an era like that again, we might see a no self. There's not any, we might see or, a year or two like it, but I don't know if you'll see in a, you know, a 10, 12 year span of just domination like that. Uh, the game has just changed from a, from a salary, you know, the salary cap era. And, uh, you know, for me, Batman kind of ruined a lot of it with the point after 60, you know, so now you have 24 teams that can go out and tell their fan base that we had a winning team last year because they were, you know, 24 teams, 23 or 24 every year, are 500 or better. So, you know, just by sticking that point after. And I, I don't I don't hate the shootout as much as I hate the point after 60. Like if if you want to give a point after <laughs> something, do it after the first overtime if you lose it and then make it three to I, I don't even know what the solution is but the point after 60 it just it just ruins it and now since since you brought it up the tampa bay 62 wins we have to we have to talk Put about the fact yeah they had seven or eight wins in the shootout that year which would have been in the tie column in 1996 yeah that's a good point so that definitely, you know, they say, well, they matched a 62 win record. Yeah, they got seven of them. That's a lot by of getting them. to a yeah. shootout and winning it. More That's than a 10, lot of them, exactly. Yeah. So take take seven wins off there and put them at least in the tie or the loss column. You know, for that 
for that 2019 Tampa Bay team. 62 wins, 62, 13, and 7 will never be duplicated, ever. I mean, now, because we don't have ties anymore, but also, you know, 62, let's say 62 and 20, which is, you know, a loss or a tie, that, I don't even think that will be duplicated anymore. But now with the with the point after 60 and with the shootout, for me, it dilutes the 2019. Uh, and now, now I'm starting to sound like Larry Zonka for the uh, for the Miami Dolphins. Yeah. Yeah, like, right. Nobody's better than our Dolphins. Yeah, team. yeah. Just yeah. going out that yeah. 1972, yeah. like break out the champagne. Yeah, yeah. Champagne. every year. Yeah. I actually kind of like that, but I think it's funny. Like that mm. they're always sitting with the champagne out icing. Yeah, yeah. yeah what are they 12 what are they, and 0. Yeah, they get, <laughs> yeah. They're not going to have that party ever again. So uh, yeah. Yeah. kind of bad for them. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So before we get off the Russians, I want to circle back to it real quick because. I know you have some story, and I don't understand it because I haven't heard it, and I don't understand how it even is a story. But you're Canadian, right? You're not. You were born in Canada, right? No, I was you're, born in Flint. Or I was in born Flint. in Lansing, raised in. Oh, Flint. okay. So you're you're American. Okay. Yeah. You're definitely not Russian. I knew that. Definitely not. You were working for Russia in 1996 World Cup yeah. or something for yeah. Russia. How like how does that happen? Well, Igor Larionov and Slava Fetisov uh, when they organized the. Uh, the inaugural uh, World Cup of Hockey, which is what they called it in 96. Uh, there were, for the first time, all the Russian players were already in the NHL. So and so I had Igor and Slava Fetisov come in to me and say, will you be our trainer? We don't want the Russian medical system anywhere near us. We We know that you what you are capable of doing. And we would like you to represent us and work for our country. And I was, I was, I was flattered and I was, you know, it was a quick yes from me, but it was a quick no from the Russian Federation who threw up all kinds of roadblocks and uh, tried to railroad me. And, you know, to the point where Igor and Slava got the rest of the team to threaten the Russian Hockey Federation that if they didn't have American medical attention or NHL medical attention, they weren't going to participate. Uh, and somewhere I've got a uh, I've got a, a newspaper clipping that Igor saved for me. He's like, you're, you're making a big fuss in Russia. Like they're they're not happy about you. What, <laughs> they what were, is it about? They were like, calling me the American horse horse trainer or something like that. I don't even <laughs> remember what it was, but they were like, you know, I've. I'm taking a lot of shit and people badmouth me a lot after I left the game, but not, I was never called a horse trainer while I was still in the game. You no, know? the worst thing you ever called was uh, Crawford called you a nurse, right? <laughs> yeah, he called me a nurse after I flipped the towel at his hair. Yeah. We already told yeah, that story. They, they That's a good shirt. Yeah, so I, I did. I was, I was flattered. I was, you know, the first American to work for a, a Russian Federation team. And unfortunately we didn't, we didn't play that well. Uh, Pavel Bure hurt himself in the exhibition game at Joe Louis Arena, and that seriously set us back. But uh, it was a great experience. I spent three weeks in Moscow, St. Petersburg, and then the the first set of games were in uh, Germany, Sweden, uh, and Switzerland. So it was it was a lot of fun. Did they share with you, or did you just know from being in the profession? Was what was it about the Russian medical system that you said they didn't want to be anywhere near that? Was well, this different philosophy. Or? I'll tell you, Sergey Gonchar got hit between the eyes in our first practice in Russia, and uh, so he needed stitches, 
And this was a 10.30 a.m. practice, Moscow time. And the Russian physician came over to give him stitches, and he was hammered. Smelled of vodka, you know, 20 feet away. So I ended up uh, doing my first sutures on Sergei Gonshar in, in Moscow, the first of many sutures I would eventually give. But, you know, that for, for and I, I think Igor skated over and he said, see, see why we wanted you here. You know, we can't, we can't trust our, our, uh, our bodies and our NHL careers to these people, you know? Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. yeah. He was drunk. <laughs> yeah. Doctor was hammered. That's just beautiful. Just, yeah. I mean, I'm not surprised. Uh, I'm not going to get into a deep dive on Russia, but I just, I just, yeah, not shocked to hear that. I'll yeah. just leave it there. There's a good documentary on the right. Have, have you seen that one? The small, it's like a low key documentary about the Russian five story. Yeah. I, I've watched it. Yeah. yeah. There's, well, there's actually two. I've seen one and not the other. So I don't know which mm-hmm. one you're referring to. There's two Russian five documentaries, but mm-hmm. I anyway, did a good job. Yeah. They're awesome. They're awesome. So transition to this. My favorite team ever. We talked about them a little bit. 2002 Red Wings. Your yeah. Red Wings swan song. Look, I mean, there's a million ways we can go. Last time you were in, we talked about that training camp and how crazy it was. And it was 9-11. 9/11. Was it like you guys yeah. were at training camp and I think you had just convened or something, right? Like it was very early on going yeah, through we, testing. And, yeah, we were doing fitness testing. Right. Yeah. Just and, uh, uh, crazy. Yeah. Pat Verbeek's brother uh, came upstairs and said, you know, there's a plane that just flew into one of the World Trade Center buildings and we were just running our you know we had a at the time we had a battery of about 14 tests and we just so we had seven of them lined up here and seven and in between each one was a tv uh so we i went and put the master switch on the tv and everything just the fitness testing just halted and it's like i still get goosebumps now but everything just came to a stop so yeah, I think we already we yeah, talked yeah. about that. Well, that crazy. story was in the context of like the enthusiasm around that team and the fan base. And I assume among the players was so immense because you had this already great core in place and you added the best goalie of all time, one of the best players of all time in Brett Hole and another one of the best players in all time and Will Grobatai. So like just the contrast to like you're convening for the first time with this legendary team with expectations, cup or bust. And then 9-11 happens. It was just such a stark, jarring contrast. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, we did cover that last time. I'm curious to go kind of jumping a lot of steps in that season, specifically 2002. And I'm surprised I was able to find this footage. But round one, a lot of people forget this. (laughs) You're hosting Vancouver as a heavy favorite, one seed versus the eight seed. Opening two salvos at the Joe. You fall down 2 nothing. We pulled coverage of game two from... ESPN covering the aftermath of game two, about an eight minute video. We cut it down. We'll play that. And just to give you a sense of the mood, the vibe after Detroit falls down, shockingly 2-0 in the first round with the star studded team. The Canucks game plan on Dominic Hasek heading into this series was to get as much traffic in front of the net as possible. And once again, that strategy paid dividends with a pair of goals on deflections. And for the second straight game, the Dominator was outplayed by Dan Cloutier. I didn't play well, no doubt. I just... No, we were talking about the goals, you know, what, what happened, what, we, what I could do different. I... I... Well, I, I don't look for any excuse, you know. I mean, this. You know why? <laughs> Again, for goals, it's it's you cannot win the game. It's it's too many. 
So, I mean, for context, mm-hmm. if you don't know who Dan Kluge is, don't feel bad because he was <laughs> he was kind of nothing in the league. I mean, he hung around for a while. But, yeah. you know, Dominic Kostic has 19 shots on him in game two and, and coughs up four of them, just played horribly. He was clearly outplayed. Best goalie in, on the planet. Best goalie ever in my estimation. But at that time, undisputed best goalie on the planet, being outplayed back-to-back games in his barn by Dan Kluge, like just a nobody. <laughs> mm-hmm. Detroit didn't play poorly, but the goaltending situation was bad. So not only are you down 2 nothing, but you're down 2 nothing going to Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Take me to the Joe Lewis Arena locker room. You're coming in after that game two loss. The mood, Hasek looks depressed in that coverage. The coverage in the media was reflective of how stunned I think most people were. I know I was shocked. Take me into that room. What's the mood like? Were they dejected? Were they hopeful? Were they mad? What was that like in the five minutes after you got back to the room? In the immediate aftermath of games like that, uh, there's there's no yelling. There's no screaming. There's no, uh, there are quick showers. Uh, there's Nothing really to be said other than, you know, guys who needed ice packs or needed various treatment. Uh, so there's really, there really wasn't a whole lot of talk. So there was just a kind of a numbness, if you will. Um, but I think I mentioned earlier that, you know, in 12 years, maybe the 10 or 12 times that I heard Steve Eiserman raise his voice was after period one of game three in Vancouver. We still didn't have our shit together at that point. And that's one of the, that's one of the few times where he really was loud and was, uh, you know, boisterous about what needed to happen and who needed to do it. Uh, so, and then obviously the rest is history, as they say, because uh, we righted that ship fairly quickly, starting with Nick Lidstrom's uh, center ice goal and, you know, we pulled from there that actually because the, the yeah. perception is in the fan base and my perception is that was the turning point. Yeah. Right. Is that safe? Like did the mood sort of change? After some that? weight. Yeah. You, you kind of felt some weight lifted. Uh, but your question about the immediate aftermath at the Joe after game two, there really wasn't that much other than to just get our shit together, get on Redbird one, get out to Vancouver and get ready for game three. Uh, cause I think it was, I think we had two days between that game two and that game three, but it was after the first period of game three that Stevie in one of his rare moments of being, you know, demonstrative, if you will, in the, in the dressing room, uh, happened. So what did you, like, what were you thinking? You said kind of the mood in the room, like, what was John Wharton thinking? Were you like, we're in trouble. Well, we had lost the year before uh, in six games to LA. So there's always the, you know, there's always a sense of here we go again, but it doesn't last very long because uh, you then you get on the bench and you start counting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And the guy ne- standing next to me is number 11 that's going to the Hall of Fame mm-hmm. on that team. So there wasn't, for me, there was never a, there was never a panic, uh, not on that team. I didn't feel great, uh, the LA series the year before, uh, but 
that 2002 team, I just, I just, especially against Vancouver and Dan Cloutier, as you said, I just, I never felt like it wasn't going to get done. I thought it was going to take seven, to be honest with you. I thought we were going to have to go seven games to get this the way we wanted it to turn out. But fortunately it only took six. That was a good eight seed team, by the way. That they had like Bertuzzi in his prime, Marcus Naslin. Like that was not yeah, like a terrible yeah. Vancouver team. The turning point was you the, mentioned it. The Sedin brothers too. I think were in their were they, were they on young? that team? I think I didn't think they were uh, there yeah, in we'll 02. We'll have to fact check that. But they, I mean, they, Naslin, they have to be right. Naslin and Bertuzzi were all like phenomenal. That at might that have stage. been their rookie year. I'm, I, I'm, I'm, the key, I, don't quote me on that. No, no, it's, I, I won't. I, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. I, don't, I think they came like two years later, but whatever it was. I mean, it was a decent as eight seeds go team, mm-hmm. but still no excuse for Detroit to lose that series. And you mentioned the turning point was that center ice goal. I want to play it, but just for quick context, Detroit's on the road, down 2-0 in the series. The game is tied 1-1, winding down the end of the second period. And for context, you mentioned it, John. Had not played well in game three. Mm-hmm. So they're down 2-0 on the road, not playing well. And all the buzz is how Dan Cloutier, silly little pesky Dan Cloutier, yeah. is out playing the best goalie on the planet. And then this happens to change the series. Odd man rush against the Wings. Now lifts up the center right. Drives. What is Baby! Oh, it skipped past Cloutier in the first chink in the armor of the Vancouver goaltender. I think it just eludes Cloutier. It looks like he goes to catch it. Lindstrom, right at center ice, folks. Stuffing it in. We'll dump it in on net. There'll be a rebound. We can get a four-check established here. And that just goes right through the glove hand of Dan Cloutier. No one's thinking they're going to score on that. I mean, it's like... I don't know if anyone ever asked Nick about that. He, he would humbly say that he was just trying to, you know, barely miss the net and get a good bounce into the out into the half boards, but he, he might've been shooting for a goal there. It, it, it was a really good shot. Yeah. I mean, I, I obviously mean, it breaks a tie going into the locker room. So that in itself is a turning point, a big turning point, right. but it's also the context of the weight, which I, I mean, you could maybe speak to this, but the fan base, the media narrative in that moment, two seconds before that goal is scored mm-hmm. was holy shit. Dan Kluge is outclassing Dominic Hasek. And then it's like, oh, wait, yeah. he's Dan Kluge. He just gave up a ridiculous goal. Yeah. We're fine. Like, like Hasek would never do something like that. And the Dan Kluge put on his Dan Kluge hat again, and yeah. everything was fine. I mean, is that right. kind of a safe analysis? Yeah, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty on point. So, All respect to Dan Kluge. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, he's an NHL goalie for like 10 years. I yeah. mean, you could do a lot worse, but, you know, right. he had no place punching with that heavyweight. I mean, it's just, no, it no. was an incredible two games, but, you know, the, the carriage turned into a pumpkin at that point. But that was the turning point, and it, it sort of flipped the narrative for sure. Um, you know, I want to go a little bit to the mood in the room since we talked about it down 2-0. Let's fast forward a couple rounds, but stay in the same postseason. Detroit famously falls behind to a much better than Vancouver, Colorado Avalanche team, mm-hmm. defending Stanley Cup champions, a loaded team the year prior, an even better team in this season. Peter Forsberg, to this day, is the only guy to lead the postseason in points and not make the Stanley Cup finals in 2002. Mm-hmm. There's a little trivia for you. Dominant, great Colorado team. Takes a 3-2 lead over the Detroit Red Wings in the Western Conference Finals. They're going to game six in Colorado. 
on the ropes, their own Hall of Fame netminder there, all their own lineup star-studded full of Hall of Famers as well. You're in that same locker room. After game five, you fall down 3-2. Was it the same kind of thing you saw down two out of Vancouver? Stoic, calm, determined. Take me there. What was that like? Pretty much the same. Uh, and I think we had, we had gained some strength and some confidence uh, from the Vancouver series. So there was, you know, there was that on the ropes, but that resi- resiliency also. So I don't, again, you know, there was, there was too much experience in that room for panic to also exist in it. So I never, again, even in that, even in that series, in that moment down three, two, I, I wasn't panicked about what was going to happen. I was scared. I mean, were you scared? You yeah. remember that? I remember that goal. Well, yeah, it's hockey, like, so yeah. anything can happen, you know. And I, I, again, I wouldn't, you know, I was in a role that I couldn't panic. So uh, by nature, I just, I just not. Plus, I had been through so many disappointing first round defeats. So you know, down three two to the defending Stanley Cup champion uh, in the Western Conference Finals, still a pretty good spot to be in right there at that point so I I was I wasn't and I don't think the team uh, as a whole was feeling any panic there I was irritated by the 2-0 Vancouver deficit like I was angry I was mad but like gun to my head I was like we're fine Mm -hmm. I can't say the same for that Colorado series I wasn't saying oh we have no chance it's over I, I mean I was terrified because they had again been the Stanley Cup champions the year prior. They had been a very worthy foe, a very worthy adversary for us for a long time. They had punched, punch for punch with us for a while. Yeah. Like, the, you know, two cups, two cups at that point. You know, this was sort of like the rubber match for yeah, who was, was. going to get the third cup in that era. So they were, they were Detroit's equal in my mind. And, you know, you can argue, but neck and neck. And you got to go there and beat Patrick Waugh and then come back and beat him again. Like, I, I just, I was terrified. I mean, you remember that probably, James. Like, were you, you, we were, like, freaking out at that point. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, I'm glad you guys weren't. <laughs> so, we, we talked about the Lidstrom thing being the turning point in the Vancouver series. Yeah. I don't know if this is just in my brain. I don't even remember the point in the game, and I didn't prepare it. But wasn't the Dominic Kasich fake illegal stick thing in game six in Colorado, where they, Bob Hartley said he had an illegal stick, and they brought him to the bench? Am I making that up? Wasn't that that game? Uh... It could have been. Um, I think it was. I can't, I can't say for sure. We'll but, have to check yeah. that. Because I remember, I don't know if you even remember this, but Hartley said that he had information that Hasek was using an illegal stick. And they went and they brought it and they measured it. And Hasek was talking shit to the Colorado bench yeah. this whole time. Was just saying, like, give yeah. it back. I don't know what he was saying, but it was motioning like, Give it back, like I'm fine, like you fucks. Give it yeah. back. He was talking all sorts you of idiots. Shit. Yeah, it was that yeah, what he was saying. Yeah. You, I don't know what he said. Yeah. I just could kind of they, read. His, yeah, with a stick, too too big of a stick or too right. wide of a stick. I, it was, like, I think it'd be too big, right? I, I'm not a too, I'm not Paul Boyer. Too big, or was, they might have even been measuring the curve, which you, for a, a goalie, just like if you have too much of a curve on your stick as a goalie, that's an illegal too, because that allows you to handle the puck a certain way or yeah. this or that. So. Uh, I don't even remember what they were measuring for, but I do think it was that game. I, I'm pretty sure. And, I, and, and he's I'll, cussing them out the whole time. And all they did was wake him up. 
Yeah. Oh, well, that's because in my head, you know, yeah. I wish I'd looked into it. I'm, I'm trying to find it. But like in my head, that was kind of the turning point in that series where, um, yeah, yeah, it was it was game six. It was game six. So, I mean, it's like to me, that was Hasek was like, you know what? Fuck you. Yeah. And then shut him out in both games. Shut <laughs> him out in game six and game seven. Now. He didn't need the shutout in game seven necessarily. Yeah. He had a, there were seven goals in that yeah. game. That was a wild game, too. But the game six, game. I think, was, was two nothing. It was a tight game, and he shut him out. If Hasek's not great in that game, Colorado goes and hammers yeah. Carolina in the next series and wins the cup. That so. was the most fun game seven I think I was ever. Did McCarty have like a bunch of goals in that game? Of. No, McCarty did not score. I want to see if I can remember without looking it up. It was it, not the right order. It was Holmstrom scored first. I think Fedorov was second. I know Hall scored one, Robitaille scored one, Steve Duchesne scored one, Holmstrom scored a second goal, and Datsuit scored the seventh goal to finish it. I'm pretty sure I got all wow. seven right. And did that happen? All the goals, most of them happened in the first period? Was four, it was 4 nothing after one. Yeah. And then they scored two <laughs> goals in the first 10 minutes of the second period. And there's that famous clip of Patrick Wilde looking to the bench, and he's like, like just, yeah. He does, I, he's not even mad. He's just like, what the fuck is happening yeah. to me right now? Yeah. And the announcer. The same look he gave the bench in Montreal. Yeah. Well, Detroit's oh, done that. We left. <laughs> yeah. Detroit's, in, the, uh, in the 11 to 1 game that actually cost us, uh, you know, that 11 to 1 victory actually cost us a little bit because him ending up in Colorado yep. did not work out in our favor. Uh, that's initially, a great point. Initially. I yeah. never even thought about that. Yeah, we but got, Detroit sent we got to, as we got as Scotty Bowman used to like to say, we got hoisted on our own Picard. <laughs> I I've never in all my I never thought about that, yeah. but it's true. Detroit yeah. put him in Colorado's arms. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That was the well, that was the game the the paper had was it Au Revoir. Yeah, yes. yeah. That day. was it was after they traded him. Yeah. I don't think it was the next day after the end. Yeah. I thought it was after that. So, it may have been. Yeah. So the old uh, Montreal Forum, the benches were right next to him there was no glass in between so i i had he he said it in french but when he walked by the owner and said i just played my last fucking game for this team i heard every word i didn't know what he said but i I could i could i felt the emotion yeah and it was intense it was it was crazy you know I'm going to check that. Remember seven. he walked off the ice and just said, Oh, yeah. Well, there's yeah. great footage of it. He goes like yeah. right up to the bench. And then they show, was it the, the coach or the owner? I think it was the coach that they like panned to. And he just looked like, oh, fuck. Yeah. What was that? Like, you can see yeah. his face. Because he could speak French. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. He understood. <laughs> I didn't this understand. wasn't a pro off situation, Coach Angry. This is <laughs> he knew exactly what, yeah. what, what yeah. I was saying. I don't know. Ben, I don't know. I know you're busy with like 17 different cameras back there. I think it may have been Frederick Olsen and not Steve Duchesne on that seventh goal. It will bother me. I don't know if you can. I'm pretty sure it was Olsen, but the rest I got right. But anyway, so awesome discussion on the 0-2 Red Wings. I mean, my favorite team ever. I think, I don't know, in a quick word, 97, 98, or 2 did you have a cup that was kind of your favorite? The first one will always, you know, and ending that 42-year drought, uh, especially after the, you know, early in my career, with the team, those those first round exits with really good teams stung, and you know, you, I think Jimmy D, you know, after the '96, the '60, the legit '62 win season, and we lose in the conference finals, you start to wonder if it's ever going to happen, you know. And you've got this 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 great great team, and you've got these 
unbelievable talents on the ice. And now you got Scotty Bowman and, and you win 62 games, but you don't win the cup. And you're like, man, is this ever going to happen? So when it happened next year, the, just the relief, you know, not as relieved as the whole city was in the whole, you know, 42 years of frustration, the relief in that room. And I think, you know, from Mike Illich on down was, was incredible. So for me, you know, 2002 was awesome because of the collection of talent that was in that room and on that bench in front of me. But, you know, for the sheer magnitude of what it meant for so many, it's always going to be 97 for me. What was the best part about winning the cup the first time? Was it the the partying, like we're hanging out the night of the parade or was it kind of just like, all the summer stuff that you Man, guys were that, doing. With the it. summer after had to have been cool. Like almost, well, like, we don't, if you remember, unfortunately, we only got six days of celebration right. for that because of the oh, limo accident. That's right. uh, so, uh, you know, and, and you mentioned 98. So That's especially hard on you, too. So, so 98 might even be uh, more special to me uh, because of, of the amount of time it took me away, you know, all the time I the days and nights that I spent at Beaumont uh, uh, so 98 was probably a close second after 97 so I'd actually put 2002 as as the third favorite uh, mm-hmm. just for what it for what it meant and what we you know what we were able to overcome without Vladdy uh, and without Sergei Manatsikhanov helping me out you know it was it was huge so uh, I yeah I'd, I'd rank them in that the, the the exact way they happen was how I'd rank them. <laughs> you got you got me um, thinking, John. I've never asked you this. I've never even thought to ask you. So I I can't remember if it was ninety seven, ninety eight, or two thousand two, and I can't and I know it was an 08. And I I don't. You may not even remember this, but we had reservations. James, I don't know. Maybe you'll remember. You were a Birmingham guy back in the day. There used to be a restaurant right next to the Birmingham Eight Forte Forte. Yeah. We had a reservation there. My family did. It was some. It, you know, it was like June or whatever. Some occasion. And they canceled on us and said, like, mm-hmm. hey, we have a private event. That was O2. It was O2. Okay. Yeah. So we had a dinner reservation. It was so we were <laughs> celebrating something. It was like my aunt had graduated from yeah. med school. So we had like a big family thing. And they told us we can't honor the reservation. And right. we said, What the hell are you talking about? Hey, what do you mean? And so they wouldn't tell us. They didn't they wouldn't tell us. So we found out after the yeah. fact. That did it, it must have been the O2 Red Wings yeah. were at Forte and Birmingham were like, oh, that's okay. Yeah, like, no, that, that was bad. That, that was the, you could have told me George W. Bush was there and I'd be like, fuck that. We yeah. had a reservation. <laughs> if the, the wings. O2 Wings needed, yeah, no, yeah. no problem. So the way that happened was that the team photo, uh, guys wanted to have a, one last dinner before everyone started splitting. So Steve Eiserman uh, was friends with the owner. Called Forte and canceled your reservation. That's so. I, I, so this <laughs> is the took the whole thing. place. Yeah, I, I was. We were like. I mean, I was. I would have been fifteen. I remember being a kid. I couldn't remember. You know what year it was? I thought it was O two. But we were. We didn't know like what the hell had happened. It was the weirdest thing. Yeah. Like who? We should have. We stupid. It was like a couple of days yeah. after. We probably should have figured it out. But we were just perplexed. It's like this is bizarre. We actually were thinking like it's some political figure. They they can't have the public there. Mm-hmm. Like someone might shoot the president or you know whatever that's where our heads were yeah. and then we found out after the fact like oh it was the red wings and it was the most acceptable dinner cancellation ever yeah. it's like, <laughs> i like, was happy to give you my seat yeah. like, okay <laughs> you're allowed yeah. <laughs> you were the you were the only ones that i would have been like oh okay no problem sorry sorry aunt carolyn but 
anyway, so you actually invented our next and last segment, John. So this is you and I were oh, talking. Yeah. The yeah. last time we are the day before, I, I messaged John. And I said, John, I got 150 things I want to talk to you about. I don't want to keep you here for three weeks straight, <laughs> pull three all nighters or whatever. Like, we got to pare this down. Like, what do you think? What do you think would be kind of the best? And we collaborated a little bit on general topics. And he said, okay, let's do, you know, this, 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 I like that. But, you know, if you want to rip through some more, why don't you do a speed round? Well, John, ever <laughs> since we've done 35 episodes, literally since, and every every episode since we've had a speed round. So this is the John Wharton speed round. Right, Typically, right. we do one to three sentences. I want to give you a little more time if you need it. Take your time because some of these might have longer, better answers. But Without further ado, the John Wharton get speed James, round. Get James in here. On James will be too? in on all okay, these. Yep. Good. All right. But it's it's your round, buddy, because this is like named after you. You invented the segment. Got it. But I do want answers from both of you. So okay, we'll start with this, and, and uh, even this one I had to cut down. But this James has to sit out because he doesn't know because I don't know. But I've heard from many people that you. We're the one that came up with the nickname, the grind line for the famous yeah. line with Draper, Malpe and McCarty. And some people put kosher in there. Yeah. Is that true? And what's the story behind it? If it is true. That is true. We were in St. Louis. Uh, uh, they, the marketing department actually, uh, can't remember which person from as actually merchandising called and said, we need, you know, we need to print out a t-shirt for your line because that that fourth line was getting a lot of popularity they were really good really important to our team uh so you know they're because joey coaster was obviously there and he's you know he did the whole bash brothers and bruise brothers and that whole thing was there and so they were throwing around these names in the locker room and i said you guys are you guys are a bunch of fucking grinders you're the grind line and Draper's on the phone. And he's like, yeah, we're the grind line. <laughs> we're the grind line. Hung up. He's like, call us the grind line. Hung up. Hung up the phone. I never, yeah. see, I'd never heard that story. Yeah. I had heard that like John Ward had created yeah, that. So, yeah, merchandise had called right into, right into the, the training room in St. Louis at Keel Center with the name of the place at the, the arena at the time. Called the Keel Center. They put them in. They, and uh, Draper... Malpy and Darren were all in the training room, like just trying to brainstorm and think of a name. They put it like players. coming up with all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. They're like, well, what That's do you want to be called? Yeah. And I'm like, you, you guys are a bunch of grinders. Like yeah. you guys are muckers and grinders. And I was like, you're the grind line. That I just, immediately I sticks. just said it. And I just said it. You're the grind line. And Draper goes, yeah, we're call us the grind line. And he just <laughs> hung up the phone. That was it. No debate. I mean, that that. like, if, if you're thinking about it, it's like, I know we're contemporaries, James, and you know, frankly, you are too. We're, we were none of us were around in like the '40s, but I think that's one of the five most iconic line names in hockey. You have the production line here in Detroit with you know How Abel and um, who is it, Lindsay. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you know the Russian five. I, I would say for us would be number one, the yeah. grind line. But then it's like who is it? The like the BBC line, like you know for right. the, the for the Canes, like the what was the the Broadway line for Philly. The, the Eric Windross 97 team had a, a name. We don't even remember it. Like, 
That's what you can't. The look, Legion of Doom. The Legion of Doom. Yeah, yeah. that was Leclerc, Brindamore, and Lindros. Yeah. Right. Right. What was so, the one the two two kids and an old goat? That was another one. That was Hall, that, which quickly became the Legion of Broom. Yeah. Right. I, I, that was a games. clean sweep. Yeah. A clean sweep. Yeah. yeah. That series wasn't even competitive. I love when they <laughs> went to Gar Snow in Game Three. That was cute. That worked out. But no, it's it's. I think it's hilarious that like the top five line name, in my opinion, like in mm-hmm. hockey, at least in my realm. Was like an off the cuff, like you're. Yeah, flying. that's how it happened. That's that's like one of the. I'm, I mean, I'm your name's idea, on the cuff I'm three the, times. Uh, I'm the idea guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> come to me for the yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, we got to come up with some nicknames. You created this segment. You're creating the grind line. It's like yeah, we got to dig your uh, through your brain for some more gold. <laughs> so okay, sorry, James, you had to sit that one out, but you can chime in on this one. I'll even let you start, James. Dominic Kosick, the best ever. I have gotten into arguments with my friend Sean Belegian to the point where he would not speak with me. For a couple of weeks, Ooh, because he's a Patrick Wah guy. He's a huge Canadians fan. He's a Wah guy. Wah is his number one. Wah isn't even the common other answer. The most common other answer, if you disagree with me on Dominic Hasek, is Martin Brodeur. I don't know anybody that has seen these three guys play, anybody in our age bracket, you know, even 20 to 60, that doesn't say it's one of those three guys. Where do you land? Who's the best goalie of all time? Just by... I don't know any of the stats or anything like that. I used to be goalie for when I was in the nineties for little Caesars and Wah was always my favorite. So you were a Wah guy. Wah guy. Yeah, absolutely. Where's John standing? So we're going to have one of each. Uh, I'm a Marty Brodeur oh, guy. Oh man. Uh, especially after I, I was invited uh, in 2004 to work the world stars tour. Wayne Gretzky's during the lockout. Uh, and Marty Brodeur was the goalie for that. And I got to meet, man, what a, what a great guy. Those commercials he does, that's exactly yeah. him. That's him. He's, he's, a good he's guy. not the, acting the at all. The, yeah. uh, Marty Brodeur is one of my favorite people in hockey. Great guy. He never invited yeah. you to a party no, with no, kids and girls, though. I'm sorry. No, yeah, no disrespect to Dom, because Dom is all, probably also in my top five of hockey people. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, a, just a fun guy. Just invited a fun you guy to the Hall to of Fame speech, right? He did, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, invited me to the Hall of Fame when he got inducted. That's awesome. But yeah, for me, it's it's Marty just on just on the, the numbers and the cups and uh, yeah, I think so Broder's one of the each more acceptable. So so all we really did was kick this can down the road because yeah. we got yeah. one, one, one. I will still speak with both of you after the show, though it will not be a Sean Belichick <laughs> Justin Spiro fight. Like what a silly thing to fight about, but we had, we had a serious <laughs> argument. You know these things really matter in the grand scheme of things for sure. So let's move to this. We'll stay on goalies. Certainly no one's argument would be that he's the best of all time. But is he good enough to be a Hall of Famer? John, we'll start with you. Chris Osgood. Is Chris Osgood a Hall of Famer? I think so. Why do you uh, think so? Just the, the body of work, the number of wins, the number of games played, uh, the longevity of the career. That's not an easy, really not an easy thing to do. Uh, I don't know if you've ever put goalie pads on, even even for like, a half an hour <laughs> it's it's next even if you've played hockey uh you've you played a lot of hockey yeah. did you ever put the pads on i played goalie yeah oh you yeah. were a goalie yeah. mm-hmm. so you know how difficult yeah. it is then yeah it's 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 an impossible position to be really good at and to be consistently good and to stay healthy for as long as chris osgood you know took care of himself in the phenomenal way that he did uh you know, I, I remember the kid, his very first training camp up in Flint. Uh, we we get into the battery of tests that we had, our fitness test. And after the second one, he's puking in a barrel. 
because he's about 155, 160 pounds soaking wet. But by the time he became a Stanley Cup winner, he was 182 pounds, mostly muscle. He did that, you know. All I did was give him the the direction. He he did that. He put in the work. So uh, if you just look at the body of work and longevity, and the you know the cups have to factor in uh, the ones he started and the ones he backed up. So I, I think I think he is. You know, I don't. I look at the guy. I look at the goalies because I've heard this debate before. I look at the goalies that are in, and I look at the goalies who aren't. In. I mean, is Grant Fuhr a uh, Hall of Fame goalie on any other team? Go, go look at his yeah, goals against. Go look at his were, save percentage. Yeah. Yeah. You know, no, but that was hockey was a different era. You know, games were eight six, seven four. Yeah, you know, people a lot say of those, like. Your goals so, against is like three five, which yeah. would be like get you kicked out of the league exactly. now. But it wasn't so I mean, I look at the guys who are in, but then you also have to look at the teams that they played on and who they played with. Uh, and for me, it's it's Chris Osgood as a Hall of Famer, based on the length of the career, the the body of work that he had, the cups, the number of wins. There's just a lot. There's a lot there for me to say yes to. James is he in? I would say body work, yes, but was he ever a top five goalie in the league at any point? I don't think he was. I think but he is like the ultimate, like, sort of the line. He's the line, which you could argue either way. Like, if you're worse than yeah, Chris Asgood, you shouldn't be in. If you're better than Chris Asgood, like, clearly you have more, you know, backing statistically, awards, whatever, you should definitely be in. Yeah. So, like, he is the line. I, I gun in my head, I put him in, but it's close. Unfortunately, it, a lot of times, too, it's a personality contest. Is Mark Andre Fleury going to get in? Probably. Yeah, probably will. Is he? Is he? Is he going to have the body of work that Chris Osgood did? Probably not. It'll be similar. I mean, it'll I, be very yeah. similar. Yeah. So, but the personality, you know, and the flair and everything. So, Ozzy was just very workmanlike, very businesslike. You know, he didn't have you know head twitches or you know he didn't you know speak with a whole lot of flair but he was consistently a lot of big games too consistently yeah. solid and uh a lot came in came in clutch and a lot of big big moments so i i don't for me there's no question i understand why there's a lot of question for uh, for other people but for me i i think he's a hall of famer was there any weirdness real quick on osgood when hasek was acquired in 01 you you know osgood's the goalie for the team then right. had a cup on his resume was you know born and raised in his nhl career with this organization was there any like with his teammates or with osgood himself did you sense any like oh shit osgood's leaving like that sucks? did not sense that again it if there was it missed me okay you know? yeah because i it's i think even osgood would understand like i mean look this is a crazy comparison because i'm not the equivalent the broadcasting equivalent to chris osgood but let's say i was a little better than i am and like, you know, Colin Coward wanted to take over the Screw Avenue show. And you know, <laughs> it's and Ben was like, hey, you know, I'm gonna go work with Colin Coward. Like, yeah, it's, I get it. it sucks, but you know, <laughs> I it's it. like, what am I gonna All do, right. guys? This is yeah. bullshit. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, and you guys are saying, better off with me. <laughs> well, and we saw that in town with you know our friend Chris Castellani, who had this offer from Woodward Sports, and it's like he was about to sign there, and then it's like, oh, Barcelona Sports gave him an offer. And, you know, I'm good friends with Adam Baydoon as a corner at Woodward, and they were disappointed, but it's like, yeah, Barstool called. Like, yeah. yeah. So I was just curious if there was anything, but apparently not. That any, wouldn't have no. been able, I mean, with Eisner as captain, that would have never, wouldn't have, wouldn't have gone too far anyway, right? I mean, 
any Correct. discord any yeah. kind yeah. of yeah, like hey yeah. squash that real quick yeah and i i think you know goalies in the nhl there's there's they're a tight community so they knew each other a little bit even before he was acquired in detroit so there was a friendship there already so i don't you know if there was i didn't I didn't sense it. It missed me. That's good. Well, that my childhood is preserved then. I'm glad there was no <laughs> discord regarding Asa coming here. So another Detroit legend, maybe the Detroit legend in the hockey world, Gordy Howe. I met him once. <laughs> he was a total gentleman. Uh, I was a kid. I was maybe nine or 10 years old. And I went up to him and I didn't know what to say. He was at a, like a sports uh, card signing thing. And I went up to him and I said, uh, you know, my dad told me you were the best ever. It's, I just, that's, I didn't know what else to say. I was nervous. Yeah. And he just goes, nah, nah, your dad's just a nice guy. And just, you know, <laughs> couldn't have been more cool. My understanding was he was around the team some yeah. when you were there. I mean, did you have any interactions with him? What he, was Gordy Howe uh, well, the guy like? I'll tell you, this is it. <laughs> my second day on the job, I'm sitting in, uh, I'm sitting at my desk. So there was a medical room. So if, if this is the medical room and then back here is Dr. Finley's room, there's a door right here. And then my office is right here. So I'm just sitting at my office and I'm talking to the controller, Paul McDonald, and I hear some keys clicking in Dr. Finley's door. And I was like, Paul, it was, it was like July or made have been late June, early July. I'm like, who's coming? And he's like, I go, who has keys? And he is uh, Mark Brennan, the equipment manager, obviously at the time. Uh, and then he goes, and then there's a, f- a few legends have keys. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like Ted Lindsay. And go, and as soon as he says, Gordy, I turn around and Gordy Howe's walking through the door and he's like, sit, sit down, sit down. So he, and, he, and then he's like, you're, so you're the new guy. He, I'm like, I, I'm speechless. I think I hung up on Paul. I, I, I still don't know. I've got to find out if I hung up on him, but I couldn't get out. Of, I was trying to get out of my seat and I like stumbled and Gordy Howe's like, have a seat. Have a, you want a coffee? The guy, he went and got brought me coffee my second day on the job Gordy Howe was bringing me coffee and we sat and talked for like two hours so he used to come in he would come in you know uh, Mitch Album wrote that uh, Tuesdays with Maury's I I really I want to write I I do like to write so I I want to write a book because there's I took notes at some point so I want to do mornings with Gordy because he in the the moment the first current Red Wings showed up, he'd like, see you later. I'm out of here. This is the room. He never wanted to infringe on their space, but he would come in, he would ride the bike. He would take a sauna. You could tell he just wanted to, you know, be in the atmosphere, uh, be around the game. And he'd leave. He wouldn't and hang he would out. Leave. He would not hang out once the, once the first player started to show up. So yeah, that became a kind of a regular thing. And then uh, as the season wore on, he would go back up to his home in, in Traverse City. So this was, you know, this was a regular thing for probably, you know, first eight years of my career. I had mornings with Gordy. That, I great. want that book. Write that book. Yeah, I want that book awesome. even before like the crazy stroke. <laughs> like I want, I want just the Gordy Howe conversations. Yeah. Like yeah, I'd be so fast. Awesome. So you got to know him real well. I mean, I did. Yeah. yeah was, that's awesome. I was very, very fortunate. I mean, I'm sure yeah. you don't remember the entire two-hour conversation, but do you, like, general kind of like, what the hell do you, what do you talk about with Gordy Howe? I would he, have questions for him. He, he, he more, that two hours was kind of offering me advice. At the time, I was 26 years old. I had, you know, I was the youngest pro 
head trainer in sports and he could tell I, I was green and I was nervous and he, he was, you know, he was trying to offer advice and he, he told me something in that two hours that proved to be true. He said, within the first half of a year, you're going to see all the injuries you're going to see, you know, all the different types of things that are going to happen are going to happen quickly. But once you get good at them and once you get really proficient at helping these guys, you know, he was in an era. They didn't, you know, they didn't have it. I had Lefty Wilson, legendary trainer. God bless his soul. Uh, he's, he, you know, he was, he was the legendary Lefty Wilson. So he was, you know, we, he, we loved Lefty, but, you know, we know he didn't know anything. We, we had to really work with each other. You know, when I say he didn't know anything, he didn't have a medical degree. You know, he didn't, they didn't study for, I don't want to, I don't want to disparage on Lefty, Lefty Wilson's legacy, but uh, he was, you know, they knew even back in the, the forties and fifties that there were a certain number of injuries that you were going to have. And they, they knew as players back then how to manage those injuries. So he spent for, you know, probably an hour of that time, you know, convincing me that, you know, you're going to see everything you're going to see probably in the first six months. And with the exception of Draper's injury and Vladimir Konstantinov's accident, he was right. I just, I can't imagine like, is that not one of the coolest stories you've ever heard? Your second day on the job. Yeah, like, second day. And that's, you continue to see him, though, right? I mean, you, yeah. you saw him all the time. Oh, yeah. But yeah, that's yeah, crazy. He always came in. That, that has to be like. It was your... always in the morning, too. He'd come down after games sometimes, but he would just stay around. He would talk to Scotty a lot. But he would never come, you know, in the room with the players. He, I, he, he stayed separate from that. And that was on, that was on purpose. You could, purpose. He, he told yeah. you that or he, you sensed that? I sensed that he, you know, he just didn't want to be in their space. That was their time. And, you know, he, he didn't want to be in their he, big dick in anybody he, for like, yeah, I'm he, have, yeah, he knew the footprint that he, that he has. And he didn't want to put it anywhere in someone else's territory. But yeah. I've heard them, like, players talk about, that the fact that they're around, they they know that he was around, like you know, seeing players yeah. like that, like you know, this guy, you know, Gordy yeah. Howe's walking around, not in the locker room, but he's around the arena, yeah. things like that, and that that was, yeah. that was a big thing. Ted, Lin Ted Lindsay as well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, Alex Del Vecchio, to a lesser degree, but a lot of those legends, all you know, it was it was important to the current players when they saw those guys. They definitely took note. I've heard some good ones over the years. I don't know if I've ever heard a better. I'm not in Kansas anymore story. Then I'm second day in a new job. And Gordy Howe. <laughs> Keys clinging in the back door. Paul McDonald. Who could that be? Holy shit. It'd be cool even <laughs> if you saw him and said hi. Yeah. But like he got you coffee yeah, and said, coffee hey, settle up, partner. Let me sit and talk yeah. to you about, you know, all the injuries you're going to see. I just, yeah. it's like, I, it's, it's the coolest. He loved talking about the game, but he didn't always like to talk about, you know, strategy or on ice or that he loved everything about the game and the you know obviously he had more than his fair share of injuries so he was he was a great resource for me you know um uh, i learned a lot of i learned a lot of things from him i learned a lot of things from Igor larianoff and that for me to be as successful as i was i had to be open to people who had been no matter what era they played in it was still the same game so i had to be really open to what they experienced at that level, at the highest level, Gordy Howe level, uh, you know, and I was a sponge just soaking that kind of was stuff Was he in the up. 70s at that point? That was 70s? Yeah. Yeah, he would Was he banged up? Was he super banged up from, I mean, his probably hands and elbows and knees were probably <clears> couldn't, bad, right? couldn't tell. His, his hands were 
man, his hands were ginormous. Yeah. I've never seen hands that big on a human being before. I was like, whoa. He shook my hand and I was like, swallowed up. Yeah. <laughs> he was like the, that. I mean, there's a reason why it's like the Gordie Al hat trick. Like he was a badass. He's like the original badass yeah. in hockey and was a skill player at the same time. When you were on last time, John, several months ago now, James and I have this thing that we, it's kind of like a bit we do where we talk about like if you could jump into somebody's like 10 year period of life or 15 year period of life and just like live it, like, you know, retroactively, like what would be a cool one? I mean, I'm not making that up, right? That's something we do. Like James said after your last show, like if I could go back and just like do that 10 years, like with somebody else's 10 years right now, just like buy it on (laughs) eBay. Like yeah. John Wharton's like first 10 years in Detroit would be way up there. I mean, it's that, way up there. The yeah. buy it now price would be six figures for that experience. Yeah. And I, we said that before second day sitting talking to Gordy Al. I thought maybe he had a cool story if he was nice in the hallway. I didn't realize you had such a like intimate relationship with them yeah. on day yeah. two. I mean, it's just insane. Yeah, it started second day on the job. Incredible. So he will live on. It's just incredible. He, he will live on in Detroit war and history forever. And so will this individual, but not as a man of fame, but a man of infamy. And that brings us to our next one. I've always wondered about this. There are a lot of oh, conspiracy geez. theories going out there. But the Red Wings sign from their nemesis, Colorado Avalanche, Uwe Krupp, a six foot six, 250-pound defenseman. That was going into that uh, 01-02 season, I think. Uh, and it was considered a, a coup. He was a good player for Colorado, was a tough guy, could actually score a little bit. I think his last year in Colorado was like he was like a 40-point guy. And it was considered a massive signing because you're adding him to your team and you're depriving your rival, your bitter at the right. time rival, of the player as well. And, I mean, other than Darian Hatcher, I can't think of this going any worse, like in terms of the history of Detroit big defenseman being signed. Mm-hmm. Everything was out there that it was a bobsled accident. There were some conspiracy theories that it wasn't a bobsled accident, that he was doing something else. I, I think it was dog sled, whatever dog it was. Sled, yeah. It was dog sled. Like, what happened with him? What, take me through that a little bit. Like He gets there. There's an injury. Were people mad at him when this was going on? I know the fans were. Like, What I mean, was the UA Coop experience? What happened? He was a super, super nice guy. Uh, I don't have any, any issues with, with UA Coop on a personal level, uh, professionally, he, uh, had some back injuries. We don't know if those were hockey related, if they were dog sledding related. Uh, but we do know, uh, and affidavits proved on many occasions that while we left him back to rehab in Detroit, while we were traveling, he was in Northern Michigan, uh, entered in dog sled races. (laughs) So, uh, I don't, you know, that wasn't in my rehab protocol. <laughs> and he, was, he was missing games. Or he was missing games and he was mush, He was mushing. <laughs> he was up north mushing. Uh, so, you know, there was, obviously there was litigation. There was some, some fight over the, the terms of his contract and his signing bonus. And uh, it got, it got really messy. Uh, and it, you know, it, it just, it just wasn't a good look. You know, I don't, I don't, I'm not calling him a liar on how he got hurt. Uh, the affidavits from witnesses in Northern Michigan, when he was, you know, mushing horses or mushing dogs, dog sled races up in Northern Michigan, when he was supposedly rehabbing it 
SUNY Ford Hospital Center for Athletic Medicine when we left town. Uh, that's, you know, that's not debatable. That happened. So, uh, but it's, like I said, he, he was a very nice person. Uh, got along with him good on a personal level. It was just the professional level that I, I never felt like, I, I never felt like he embraced being a Red Wing. And coming from Colorado and our disdain for that team, that, you know, rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. We, we kind of felt, you know, like this was a, a Trojan horse thing. Yeah, yeah, I would feel uh, that too. You know, and a few people mentioned that, you know, is this guy here just to figure out what's going on? <laughs> you know, but I mean, it's, we ended up winning, you know, he wasn't dressed when we won a cup, but. He was part of the team. There's a picture of him holding the cup Absolutely. on the bench. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, he's a <laughs> Detroit Red Wings Stanley Cup champion. So, you know, it's uh, obviously it ended well. The Colorado thing, like, coming from there, it is like the real life. Like, Adam Banks goes to the Ducks, and it's like, just because you wear that jersey doesn't make you a real duck yeah, or whatever. Real duck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. Like, yeah. Although Adam Banks was a better player than Uwe Group, was a little <laughs> more of a pivotal guy to maybe yeah. try to ingratiate into the lineup properly, but. Yeah, the Does that make sense though? It's, yeah, uh, just, oh, it makes oh, it, and, and maybe it. if he didn't, to be honest with you, some people felt that way about Chris Chelios when he came from Chicago That's too. Right. It was you know it was like, you know, does this guy is he really does he does he really want to be a Red Wing? You know, he's born in Chicago, lived in Chicago, uh, sobbed when he got s- traded, sobbed when he got traded, was pissed to be here, you know called Kid Rock every name in the book when we played his music until he became friends with him. Yeah. yeah. Wait, what? Yeah. yeah, He he didn't like the Kid Rock He's like, turn that shit off. That's, uh, God, that's awful. Turn it off. Hey, Bobby. That's Bob Ritchie. Hey, Bob, how's it going? And the next thing you know, they're they're like best friends. But hey, there was a lot of people who He was pissed. Chelios was pissed when he first got there. Like in the locker room, he was pissed. Yeah, he, it was. You could tell he was just disgruntled. You he know? sobbed he, at his he, press conference. Yeah, like yeah. he was not like visibly happy to be there. Chelios was like thirty-one when he got traded, right? Wasn't yeah, he, he was old. Like he was probably like, maybe even a yeah. Older. But by the by the time that one that didn't last long, like he, he quickly became, uh, you know, in, ingrained and part of the group and part of the winged wheel, and uh, uh, never felt that that Yui group ever did. Oh, I, I it, night and day, I, I would imagine. And the thing with Chelios is people kind of forget because he hung on for so long and was at the end. I mean, I love him to death. He's this good Greek boy like mm-hmm. me. But he was kind of a chair pusher at the end. I mean, he was 46. Like, I think we yeah, can cut him a break. It's incredible. Like, it's just the fact that he was even able to stand up out there. Yeah. So I'm not knocking him. But, like, people kind of forget that it wasn't just Montreal and Chicago that he was great. He was runner-up for the Norris yeah, Trophy here. in 02. Yeah. to Lidstrom, <laughs> his teammate. Mm-hmm. But it's like, I think people kind of forget that like his first four years here, Chelios was still one of the best defensemen on the planet. Yeah, yeah. He was not that 46-year-old guy. It's like he stayed another nine years after yeah, that. It's, people for, it's like people forget. But you said 31. I think he was like 34 when he was came. He, I, might I, have been. I, I knew he yeah. wasn't like He was in his mid-30s. Yeah. He, was, he was in his mid-30s. So, but yeah, he was the runner-up to Lidstrom and, and a deserving runner-up. He was playing like 86. Like, or 88 yeah. or something like that. Yeah, like he yeah. was. Like, yeah, he was on the Canadians in the 80s. <laughs> yeah, great player. And it, uh, definitely one of my like 10, 15 favorites of that era for sure. 
So speaking like of guys chili. that, oh, go ahead. You have something else? No, I was just going to like Chili a lot. Oh, he's great. He's a great guy. He's a hell of a player too in his day. Just one of the, the most feared guys. So O2 happens. We've talked about it a lot. A lot of people left after O2. Scotty Bowman retires. Uh, Steve Eisenman didn't leave, but had knee surgery and was effectively out mm-hmm. for a year. You left. Sergey Fedorov goes to Anaheim. Dominic Kostic retires later, came back. There was a mass exodus. The replacement behind the bench is Dave Lewis. Now, I know mm-hmm. you're going to have to answer this from your perspective from afar, but you were in the room for all these years prior. Dave Lewis was the natural successor to Scotty Bowman. I don't know anybody that had an issue with it. It was like the obvious right. pick. Uh, well-respected assistant. Everybody seemed to like him. You're taking it from afar, but knowing what you know from your experience, why do you think Dave Lewis didn't work? He was there two years, two very good regular seasons, bounced, I think, in the first round the first time and the second round the second. Why do, why do you think Dave Lewis didn't work as a head coach? Uh, <clears throat> so when Scotty was there, you had, he had two assistants. He had Barry Smith and he had Dave Lewis. Dave Lewis was the, was the player's coach. He was, you know, he also ran the D, but he was also, you know, the the player's friend. Barry was was the was the hard ass. You know, he was Scotty's henchman. You know, he 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 usually dished out the bad news where Dave Lewis got to get dish out the good, good news. Good cop, bad cop. Good cop, bad cop. And it worked. Obviously it worked. So I think Louie, and I love him to death, I think he was probably just too nice of a guy for the job. Uh, because you do have, you know, we go back to needing to be a prick for the sake of being successful on the team. And, you know, I wasn't there, so you know, maybe he just couldn't make the hard decisions, couldn't bench the right guy when he, you know, maybe should have been, been sitting down or, you know, I don't, I don't know a whole lot about his tenure. I know, you know, other than that it was short, but knowing what I know about, the dynamic of Scotty Bowman, Dave Lewis, Barry Smith, I just think he, you know, might have been too nice of a guy to succeed in that position with that group of players at the time. And they won the president's trophy his first year. Mm-hmm. Like they were the best, which is for right. those that don't know, it's you're the most points in the league. You're the best team in the league, effectively, in the regular season, then got swept by Anaheim. So it's not like he was just a total clusterfuck. For six months, they were the best team in the league. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I'm pretty sure it was a year two you lost in the second round, not the first, but as a heavy favorite again. I don't know if you're hindsight or even going back there at the time. If you're asked John Wharton, you make the pick. Would you have gone with Barry Smith instead, or outside of the family entirely? I I probably would have hired Dave Lewis as well. I felt like he, I felt like he earned the shot at it. Uh, I I. And I thought he was going to get it when Scotty left. But so what happened was what I thought was going to happen other than the short leash. I, you know, I thought he would get three, maybe four years to write that ship. But uh, so it's, I, I think he, I think he deserved it. And I think they hired the right guy, uh, but it just didn't work out for him. So we'll finish here. The last one, this is kind of a silly, fun one. John Wharton's Red Wing road trip buddies. And let me set it up for you. You're going on a road trip. You like can. This one. You, thank you. We always try to end on a fun one, make everyone happy. I didn't know what it was. <laughs> I, you, like can, you can put three guys in that car with you. You got to drive cross country. I don't care. It has nothing to do how good a players they are. The guy <laughs> has to be a player, though. No, you know, assistant uh, trainers or whatever. I mean, I would probably pick Kira Newman yeah. and forget everybody else. But <laughs> so she's ineligible, too. Three guys you played with. 
the best guys who what's your road trip car looking like what three guys are you putting in that car somebody else is driving so no. i'm oh. i'm probably going to be driving so i'm going to want to be entertained the entire time right yeah so the guy riding shotgun is mark bergevin mark ooh, defense. all day every day <laughs> the funniest fucking guy i've ever met in my entire life the guy is a if he wasn't such a, a good general manager he should be doing stand-up because he's just hilarious the timing just everything about that guy is just the funniest and just a just a great just a good good guy and then i'd probably have uh also because i want to keep laughing as a guy like uh remember mike sillinger oh yeah Silly went to four. Went to, I think he was on Silly that was a, team in '96. Silly was a perfect name for him. <laughs> so you like Mike Silly? Yep. And then, uh, and last but certainly not least, and God bless his soul, is my buddy Sean Burr. Uh, another just uh, really great, great sense of humor. Always fun to be around. Uh, and actually, getting Sean Burr into shape for the short period of his career that I did actually gave, gave me the foot in the door with the Red Wings. Cause they hired me as their strength coach before they made me their full-time athletic trainer also. And it was the result of working with Sean Burr for a summer uh, and getting him off the donuts and bacon that actually <laughs> put my foot in the door to, to enable me to have that career. So, but, but those, yeah, Mark Bergevin, Mike Sillinger and Sean Burr. Probably not the three that you would have picked, right? No. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not, some of the other I'm ones would be, you know, a little too serious or whatever. Yeah, you know, really, I don't know. really intense. I don't. If I'm driving cross country, I don't want anybody intense. I'm with uh, you. Yeah, yeah. You need a laid back uh, people. I need laid back guys. Yeah. Well, so he I'm, and I have done road trips. Yeah. So he's like the most chill guy ever. So that's why. Yeah. If anything, I'm yeah. probably the, the asshole. <laughs> you know, don't. No, I mean, I'm a, absolutely. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I just that was a fun one. I'm not going to ask you who your three least favorite. Like, if you had to be stuck with somebody, it'd be the yeah, worst one. I won't ask you that, <laughs> but I'm thinking I want to ask you when the cameras are off. But so, John Wharton, man, uh, it's awesome. Your third time here, I love having you. Yeah, I you know I try not to keep it too long, but you got you got too much gold, man. You're nah, slinging the gold. I don't know what to right. do. I could it's talk right. to you all night, man. Seriously, yeah, good it, stories. It's all true. It's great to have you. We got our, our friends. I'm blessed. Over I'm there. extremely blessed to have. Uh, been with that team with that group of guys during that time uh for brian murray to hire me for sean burr to open the door and for brian murray to invite me in and then for scotty bowman to come in and help us achieve what we achieved uh you know i was uh, in the right place at the right time doing the right thing uh I'm extremely blessed to have all the experiences that i did you know that, no, oh, it great was fun era for us too great. <laughs> yeah, i mean that was that, that great, was a blast great, that was so much fun like, great era yeah. yeah and you end up years later with james and i in our dude group chat saying yeah. that uh <laughs> if we could run back to john wharton experience that'd be like one of our top 10 picks like in the detroit scene like oh man yeah the like, 90s no cell phones the women oh, all love john like <laughs> it's like yeah. yeah i get to be with the red wings i'm not gonna get hurt because i'm not playing yeah but, you're not playing you know, like, <laughs> like if, you know, like yeah, I you don't get hurt. I could yeah. stay up late the night before and like probably get through it. You know, like yeah. if I wanted to, like yeah, John had it made, man. That was a great experience. Your stories, you, like, you get to buy nice suits and just wear them to the plane and off the plane. And yeah, you know, right. It's just such a lifestyle. Yeah, that so. was good. 
Go to great concerts. You stay at all the pay hotels. Pay for cars. Yeah, I mean, yeah. cancel my dinner reservation at Forte for, for my <laughs> yeah. aunt's med school graduation yeah. or whatever it was. But so anyway, James Gorman joining us too from North Carolina. We got a big baptism on Sunday. Absolutely. Congratulations. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Great. Yeah, named after my father. So his um, birth certificate is Timothy Spiro II. But uh, yeah, big day coming Sunday. So you joined us from North Carolina. A beloved place for obvious reasons for me as well. But yeah. uh, it was great to finally have you in studio, man. Yeah. Pleasure being here, man. Absolutely. My first appearance on on a podcast. Or, excuse me. Yeah, show. Don't, yeah. He I'm knows I don't like it. Don't call it. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't, live show. Live show. Do yeah. not call uh, it a podcast. Live show. show. see these cameras that like see me waving. Podcasts don't have that. They so don't. podcasts you can do like from your car if you want to. You can't do this show from the car. I'm a little bit of a snob with it. I like my cameras. Okay. They're so pretty. You know. But anyway. We got a big day Sunday. I know you you uh, got a lot to do with me tonight. We got a couple of Cuban cigars with their names on them. Absolutely. So we're going to get to that. Uh, John, uh, please come back again. This I know is I, water, by the way. This yeah, is, yeah. This is, <laughs> the Spiro <laughs> Avenue water. I quit, I quit yeah. drinking about five and a half years ago. I'm very proud of that. So this is this is water. Yeah, this is water. This is the Spiro Avenue water that we give all the guests. So yeah, you're you're good. Um, anybody watching this, uh, don't don't yep. make any rude remarks. <laughs> I, I know a thing or two about people being rude on Twitter. So thank you to Ben Augusta, the great and powerful. Thanks, Oz. Ben. Ben does a great job. Today, you know, it was a little bit interesting with the intro. I think he uh, had to, like, stomp the, the device in there or something. I don't know what was going on, but we got it off the ground. Eric Williamson at home on his couch in his boxers for sure by now. Uh, does all our set design, graphic design, does an incredible job with Ben. It's a tiny little itty-bitty team, but it's a good one. So, John, love to have you back. Sorry I kept you so long. Anytime. Up, but no problem. Please come back again. Love to. James, it's a long flight for you. I think I'm done having kids, but. I hope you've been working out. You got to baptize a big boy on he's Sunday. He's a big Humberto. He's yeah, like he's seven. A big boy. He calls him Humberto Sanchez, <laughs> yes. the old Tigers yeah. pitcher. He, oh, he's like the fastest. He's a big kid. boy. He's like he's the a... chunkiest kid you've ever yeah. seen. So anyway, it's been great. We got a lot of stuff coming. We don't have a, the show booked yet, but I have a fun one that we'll be teasing shortly. Just working on the exact date. So bear with us. But for those of you that are following our social media, a big event on the 24th coming up. Trouble with the snap. Sorry, John, you're a Michigan oh. fan. We are dedicating a large. Thanks for the heads up. I'll be skipping that one. You will be (laughs) skipping that one. Your invitation was never in the mail because we don't send it to our Michigan (laughs) friends. But uh, we will be celebrating all things Paul Bunyan and Jalen Watts Jackson in a couple of weeks. A lot of photos, a lot of dignitaries coming through. So a lot of fun things going on at Spiro Avenue. A lot of fun things going on with you, the audience. We love you guys. Thanks for tuning in. John Wharton, James Gorman coming in from North Carolina. This has been the Spiro Avenue Show. Justin Spiro, thank you for joining us. We will see you again very soon. Thank you. Guys.